Welcome to Dose Nation. I am James Kent. That was Fields of Sun by Iron Butterfly from their 1968 album Heavy, which totally lives up to its name. Iron Butterfly, a, a famous psychedelic rock band, perhaps best known for Inagada De Vida, which is a classic stoner track. It takes up an entire album side, and it was meant to be played while high or tripping. In contrast, Fields of Sun is three minutes long, but it's hard to find a more powerful musical statement in psychedelic rock. And even though there are very few lyrics in this song, if you know the secret code, you can figure out what this song is actually about. Did you catch all the hidden references? You can go back and listen again. If you caught the references, you may already know where this episode is headed. If not, then stay tuned, and we'll be back to decode the secret lyrics later. If you've been listening to this entire series, you know that this is a look at the darker side of psychedelics and psychedelic culture, and specifically what happens when ideas go too far, or when our thoughts get out of our own control. The psychedelic journey into darkness has no off-ramp. There is no blueprint for escape when you start going down the psychedelic rabbit hole. And when you get to the bottom of that hole, nobody is there to offer you a ladder out. The only thing they offer you is more shovels to help you dig yourself deeper. And these are the tales I'm looking at in these episodes. These are the psychedelic tales from the crypt, the postcards from the hallucinogenic twilight zone, the entheogenic vault of horror, and the dissociative journey into the outer limits. I want to apologize in advance for this episode. All of these episodes are difficult for me, but this one is especially strange and unusual and a little bit outside of my normal realm of interest. And this subject is a long and convoluted mindfuck. I am not an expert on any of the subject matter in this episode, but I'm trying to reconstruct some history here and get the story straight. So I'll try to make it fun, but if... I get some things wrong, you have to forgive me. All of this stuff should be Googleable. Most of it I'm going to get right, but some things are even too hard for me to figure out. And some things are definitely stranger than fiction. In this episode, we will go all over time, space, and creation. We will leave the comfortable world of psychedelics and move into areas of history, religion, magic, mythology, and academic controversy. Because if you know anything about psychedelics... Psychedelic advocates and gurus managed to work psychedelics into every discussion about every subject since the dawn of time. Now this enthusiasm is understandable, but it's also a big part of what I see as the psychedelic community's credibility problem. And I've talked about this idea at length in previous episodes, this seeming inability for some people to tell a good idea from a bad idea. 
or the inability to just let bad ideas go or to disavow bad ideas and not get wrapped up in all the psychedelic speculation and take everything so seriously and so personally. And to be perfectly blunt, what I see is the main problem is that the psychedelic community has a bad habit of elevating crackpots to the levels of celebrity. And the embrace of gurus and cult-like philosophies provides a really bad and dangerous roadmap for people who want to seriously explore psychedelic space. There are very few safe blueprints for casual exploration. And you may think I'm pointing a finger at specific members of the community and calling them out for their intellectual transgressions and saying bad, bad, but that's not exactly what I'm doing. I'm using these case studies as examples to illustrate nagging feelings I've had about the psychedelic community for a long time, that we've become like an echo chamber, repeating the same dogma over and over and over, all the while purposely ignoring, forgetting, or erasing the darkest and most horrible memories of our tribe. And I include myself in, in, in this statement. I'm pointing the finger at myself as much as I'm pointing the finger at, at all of the people that I mention in these broadcasts. For instance, you may have been sold on a notion of expanded consciousness or spiritual awakening. And I'm not pointing a finger at you, I'm saying it happens to all of us that come into this community. I cop to buying into those notions myself, and I also cop to the fact that chasing those ideas of expanded consciousness and spiritual awakening almost killed me, and it drove me to the brink of insanity on more than one occasion. And over my decades in this community, everyone I have met has at least one story of a close call or a straight-up tragedy that happened to them or someone that they knew in pursuit of this idealized higher self. And one of the ideas that I'm circling with these episodes is that this radical search for the idealized self is a kind of sickness. It is a pathology that drives people to explore all forms of martial discipline, uh, ritual behavior, strange diets, strange drug cocktails, and a blend of magical thinking and religious ontology that makes the universe plastic and malleable to your own thoughts. Now, I think almost everyone I've met in the community has gotten lost in some form of magical thinking at one point in their lives. Everyone has toyed with the idea of dropping out, forming a cult, becoming a prophet, organizing an intentional community, self-actualizing, visualizing change, embracing the mythic, promoting massive social events, bringing people together through art and celebration, and like I said, I include myself in this group. I self-activated to organize a magazine and blog and podcast and a book devoted to psychedelics. I used magical thinking to make stuff, to make media. And am I changing the world? If you're listening to this podcast, then the answer is yes. In a subtle way, I am changing the world through infiltrating your thoughts with my voice. But am I changing the world for the better? The answer to that question is I have no idea. I like to think that these ideas in these episodes act as a counterbalance to the, some of the more dangerous thinking I see in the community. But then again, the things I'm saying in these episodes may be dangerous. I don't know. But then again, I can't help myself. For better or worse, these ideas just come out. 
the spontaneous compulsion to communicate new thoughts in the wake of psychedelic awakening is one of the central ideas behind psychedelic information theory, the book that I wrote. And from my observations of the community for many years, I can safely say that psychedelics often electrify people with a genuine desire to change the world. And this can be a good thing or this can be a bad thing. At first glance, it seems like a good thing because we need people out there in the world with a passion to organize and change things for the better. But on the other hand, we don't need everyone who takes psychedelics becoming an overnight prophet, seeking to form their own cult or activist group. And we don't need gurus in the community constantly bickering with each other about which is the correct cult or path or activist group to support. You can see how the dynamic of infinite instant gurus might quickly become counterproductive and prone to pointless infighting. Can anyone see the problem here? Psychedelics have always been associated with religion. In my work, I have tried to separate them in some way, but in terms of human culture and human understanding, there is almost no clean way to do this. From the earliest discoveries of psychedelics by modern Western culture, there has always been a strong urge to place them within a historical religious context. And this seems like a logical impulse, an intuitive impulse. Since psychedelics are so extremely deranging and unpredictable, wrapping them within the comfortable confines of religion and spirituality seems like a moderating force that could give people a positive pathway for experimentation. And like I said before, there are multiple pillars of the psychedelic legitimization movement, uh, the medical, the religious, and the historical context. There's also a legal pillar, which I will discuss in a later episode. But for this episode, we are talking about religion and, more importantly, the historical context of religion. Because for most of human civilization, religion is our cultural history. So if we can go back into the root of religion, we can hack into the root of history and make the argument that psychedelics are an essential building block of human civilization. And I want to state that again for clarity, just to present a very clear dynamic. The religious and historical context pillars of psychedelic legitimacy rest on the proposition that hallucinogens, as fundamental building blocks of religion, are thus essential building blocks of all human civilization. Now this argument is a direct rebuttal to the argument of prohibition, which is that psychedelics may be fundamentally incompatible with modern culture, another idea that I've been exploring on these episodes. So, which is it? Which side of the dynamic is true here? Are psychedelics essential building blocks of civilization? Or are they incompatible with modern culture? Is it possible that they're both? The merging of psychedelics with religion is a big pathway of legitimacy, particularly in the United States where one can invoke a freedom of religion clause in the First Amendment to protect psychedelic experimentation in a ritual setting. And this theory of psychedelic as religious sacrament comes from multiple sources. Plants of the Gods by Hoffman and Schultes, for instance, makes this literal connection 
going back to Hindu Soma and the mysteries of Eleusis and pre-Christian or pre-monotheistic visionary rites. And you can look around the world and find evidence that tribes have been using hallucinogens for centuries, if not for thousands of years. And you can look at mescaline and ayahuasca and mushrooms in the Americas, uh, iboga in Africa, Amanita muscaria in Siberia, as well as many others. And after looking at all that evidence, you may be tempted to say that all religion is somehow tied back to early experimentation with hallucinogens. And the entire arc of human civilization is all the end product of one psychedelic experiment. Now, this temptation to ascribe all human religion and human history to psychedelic experimentation is the idea I want to discuss in this episode. Because this idea takes the claims of psychedelic power and the pillars of psychedelic legitimacy to all new levels. I've talked in previous episodes about the escalating powers associated with psychedelics, everything from self-introspection to psychic abilities to spiritual contact to the magical ability to heal, maybe the potential to transcend all of time and space. So when we talk about psychedelics as being at the root of religion or at the dawn of civilization, we are essentially wrapping all of these notions of power and religion and historical context into a single assertion that psychedelics are the hidden hand guiding all of human evolution. And this is, of course, the idea that Terence McKenna eventually came to with Food of the Gods and his stoned ape theory, positing that mushrooms are the hidden link in the evolution of human thought. And he takes it so far as to say that maybe mushrooms came from space as a kind of colonizing force, turning early hominids into agents of rationality, possibly for carrying out psychic instructions delivered from the symbiotic space mushroom. Now, these are some very large and crazy ideas, and I will get back to Terence's ideas in another episode. But Terence's ideas were not formed in a vacuum. His big ideas were the culmination of many other big ideas that came before him, ideas that sought to ascribe immense historical power to psychedelics in general, and mushrooms in specific. Now, this episode is about one of those big ideas, and it starts with an old-school tale of archaeologists and historians hunting for a legendary lost treasure. This is some straight-up Indiana Jones shit, and you would never think that this is how the whole ball starts rolling but it is one of those strange tales you will only find when digging back through the darker side of psychedelics. Our story starts in 1947, when a young Bedouin boy nicknamed The Wolf finds an ancient cave in the desert of Qumra near the west bank of the Dead Sea in what is now occupied territory of modern Israel. This area of Qumra is cut with ancient dry riverbeds, and the high rocky banks of the ancient riverbeds are dotted with these little caves cut into the soft stone. This boy, nicknamed the Wolf, was exploring in one of these caves when he came across a set of ancient scrolls, scrolls that were thousands of years old. Now this is the opening scene of our movie, where the local boy accidentally unearths a lost secret Maybe a map to a king's treasure, or some ancient artifact of incredible power. Next, there is a flurry of activity. Word spreads of what the boy finds, and soon these ancient scrolls become known around the world as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Experts are flown in, 
a French scholar from the Catholic Church and a British archaeologist working as the director of the Jordanian Department of Antiquities come to study the scrolls and look for more scrolls. Over the next few years, working with the Boy's tribe, these experts unearth a whole series of Dead Sea Scrolls from around a dozen caves in the area around Qumran, including one very special scroll, the Copper Scroll. Now, the Copper Scroll is special because it was not written on papyrus or parchment like the other Dead Sea Scrolls. It was pressed into thinly pounded sheets of copper. Now, everyone involved knew that this was a very special scroll, possibly, possibly a map to an ancient treasure. If only there was some expert in ancient languages who could decipher what the scroll means. And now enter our hero. In 1953, six years after the discovery of the first scroll, one John Marco Allegro, a young student of Oriental languages and an expert in Greek and Hebrew dialects, is brought in to translate the Copper Scroll. Allegro is recommended by a professor and called to Jerusalem to begin work translating the Copper Scroll and other relevant scroll fragments. But why was understanding the Copper Scroll so important? Well, according to Wikipedia, here is what the text of the Copper Scroll contains. The text is an inventory of 64 locations, 63 of which are treasures of gold and silver, which have been estimated in the tons. The locations are written as if the reader would have an intimate knowledge of obscure references. For example, in the salt pit that is under the steps, 41 talents of silver. In the cave of the old washer's chamber, on the third terrace, 65 ingots of gold. There are those who understand the text to be enumerating the vast treasure that was stashed where the Romans could not find it. The treasure described by the scrolls has been assumed to be the treasure of the Jewish temple, presumably the second temple, and it was worth up to millions of dollars in 1960s value, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars by today's values. Okay, so this is where we end Act 1. We've met our hero. We have a map to the lost treasure. All we need to do is decipher the riddle of the Copper Scroll, find the lost treasure of the Jewish temple, and this is one of the best stories ever told. Am I right? I mean, I love this story so far. And this is not fiction. This all really happened. This is all real history. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and use hyperbole and say that for the next few years, possibly for the rest of his life, John Allegro, the man tasked with translating the Copper Scroll, became obsessed with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Obsessed. And I'm using the word obsessed for a reason, because it is the only way that I can rationalize what happens next. For Act 2, I want you to envision a montage of Allegro hunched over ancient scrolls, trying to piece together incomplete fragments of parchment. He's working with very limited information, and every time he thinks he's revealing something in the text, he reaches a dead end, because all of the scrolls are damaged or incomplete in some way. There is not a complete scroll in the whole bunch. There's missing pieces. So the missing pieces need to be filled in. Allegro visits the sites of all of the Qumran caves and takes hundreds of pictures of scrolls and the locations where they were found for posterity. In his head, he is mapping out the ancient worlds of the people who wrote these scrolls. He's doing more than translating. He is projecting himself into the world of the Dead Sea Scrolls and trying to figure out what they mean and trying to find a larger importance to their discovery. Now, during the time that he's deciphering the scrolls, he publishes two books, The Dead Sea Scrolls in 1956 
and the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1958. Allegro is perhaps the most enthusiastic about getting translations out to the public as soon as possible. He believes the treasure in the Copper Scroll is real, and in 1960 he publishes a book called The Treasure of the Copper Scroll, and actually leads expeditions into the desert to go and find the lost treasures of the temple. And like I said, this is some real Indiana Jones shit. This is a man who put himself on the line to go out and find the treasure. But like many movies, Act 2 does not end with the hero finding the treasure. Allegro never finds the treasure of the Copper Scroll. And at the end of Act 2, we discover that the treasure is not really the story at all. The treasure is like one of Alfred Hitchcock's MacGuffins. It is a lure that leads you into the story like a fish hook. And the fish hook in this story is obsession. Because once Allegro was hooked on an obsession, it was impossible for him to let it go. And as we enter Act 3 of our story about the treasure of the Copper Scroll, we find our hero John Allegro at odds with his colleagues and the larger academic community. Being one of the most central and most vocal members of the team translating the Dead Sea Scrolls, Allegro begins making claims about the scrolls that his colleagues do not support. And now we're getting deep into the weeds here, because central to the dispute is Allegro's commentary on one specific fragment, the commentary on Nahum. Allegro forwards that the scrolls tell the story of a teacher of righteousness, that has been martyred and crucified by Alexander Janius, the king of Judea, or another king of the time, and that the followers of the teacher of righteousness believed he would reappear at the end times as the Messiah. Now, even though the Dead Sea Scrolls are supposed to predate the appearance of Christ by a hundred years, Allegro posits that the Dead Sea Scrolls tell an earlier version of this Christian crucifixion myth that predates the Christian Gospels. The meaning of this, of course, is that Jesus Christ is not a historical person, but he was instead a reinvention of the teacher of righteousness myth playing out in another generation. Meaning that if Christ is just a warmed over legend from a hundred years earlier and not a real person, all of Christianity and all of Christian myth is essentially a lie. Now to Allegro, this notion that all of Christianity is a lie becomes the true treasure of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This idea that Christianity is based on a myth that predates the supposed birth of Christ. This is the treasure that he's been looking for. It was not the promise of tons of hidden gold and silver. It was the hidden knowledge that all of Western civilization is based on a lie, and that Christ has been exposed as a myth, and all the power of the Christian church and the Catholic faith will become instantly undone when Allegro publishes his mind-blowing revelations. Now you can see why Allegro might have found some pushback to these notions. His colleagues in Jerusalem immediately wrote a rebuttal to Allegro's claims. And the key statement from this rebuttal is reported by Wikipedia as this. It is our conviction that Allegro has either misread the text or he has built up a chain of conjectures which the materials do not support. And I'll read this again. They say, it is our conviction that Allegro has either misread the text or he has built up a chain of conjectures which the materials do not support. Now, these are the words of his colleagues. These are the people that Allegro works with translating the scrolls. This is what they say. Now, it is possible that Allegro misread the texts. This is a polite way of saying that he made a translation error. But let's back up and look at the second statement. 
that he has built up a chain of conjectures, which the materials do not support. Now, when I read this statement from the objection letter, bells start going off in my head. Building a chain of conjectures, which the evidence does not support, is a recurring theme in my study of psychedelic theory. But more than that, building a chain of conjectures which the evidence doesn't support is also a polite way of saying conspiracy theory. John Allegro forwarded a conspiracy theory built on a chain of conjectures. And if all of religion is a conspiracy, how deep does it go? How far down the well does the conspiracy lead? Now, for those of you who are fans of Allegro, you may be yelling at me right now for missing some of the details or for getting some of the details wrong. And I'm sorry, but I don't claim to be an expert on Allegro. It's one of the reasons why this episode took me so long is because I had to do more research than I wanted to to figure out what the hell is actually going on in this story. What I'm doing here is I'm telling you a nice bedtime story about a nice man who went searching for an ancient lost treasure and became obsessed with undermining one of the world's most powerful religions. He may have had an axe to grind with the church. He may have thought he was making a legitimate point about the teacher of righteousness and the Christian mythology. But either way, this chain of conjectures about the teacher of righteousness was the first conflict Allegro had with mainstream academia and Christian orthodoxy. In response to Allegro's claims, his colleagues began editing his work and delaying his publications to make sure that they could rein in some of his more unorthodox claims. Now, this worked for a while, but eventually, by 1960, Allegro came to academic blows with his Dead Sea Scrolls colleagues and had to retreat and change departments. He moved from the Department of Near East Studies to the Department of Theology at Manchester, where he was able to isolate himself and expand on his own theories about the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls without any interference from his associates. Now, during this time in the early 1960s, there is a flurry of activity in the psychedelic movement. I don't need to retell that tale now. But this is the decade where the psychedelic movement throws all of history into doubt. But most importantly for this story, in 1967, R. Gordon Wasson publishes Soma, the Divine Mushroom of Immortality, where he goes back to the Rig Veda of Hindu scriptures and examines possible entheogenic culprits for Soma and comes up with Amanita muscaria, the red-capped mushroom, as the most probable source of the ancient drug, Soma. But this isn't Wasson's story. This is Allegro's story. And it is my conjecture that the publication of Wasson's book, Soma, put a new fire in John Allegro. Now, I want to back up and say that during the whole time that Allegro had been publishing on the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the, the mid-50s all the way up through the 60s, Allegro never once mentioned the mushroom. He never once mentioned the Amanita muscaria mushroom as a potential culprit in the formulation of Christian myth or the teacher of righteousness or any of the other myths. His basic assumptions and assertions were that the Dead Sea Scrolls nullified Christian myth and basically turned the life of Christ into a lie. But now that he's been removed from working on the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
and he's now working in the Department of Theology in Manchester, he comes up with a completely different theory. And three years after the publication of Wasson's The Divine Mushroom of Immortality, Allegro publishes a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Now, I can't even begin to describe this book, so I'll defer to Wikipedia for the next couple of paragraphs. Quote, Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, argued that Christianity began as a shamanistic cult. Allegro puts forward the theory that stories of early Christianity originated in an Essene clandestine cult centered around the use of hallucinogenic mushrooms, and that the New Testament is the coded record of this shamanistic cult. Allegro further argued that the authors of the Christian Gospels did not understand the Essene thought, and when writing down the Gospels based on the stories they heard, the evangelists confused the meaning of the scrolls. In this way, according to Allegro, the Christian tradition is based on a misunderstanding of the scrolls. He also argued that the story of Jesus was based on the crucifixion of the teacher of righteousness in the scrolls. And Allegro suggested that the Dead Sea Scrolls all but proved that the historical Jesus never existed. Continuing, Allegro argued that Jesus in the Gospels was in fact a code for a type of hallucinogen, the Amanita muscaria, and that Christianity was the product of an ancient sex and mushroom cult. Critical reaction was swift and harsh. Fourteen British scholars, including Allegro's mentor at Oxford, denounced the book. Sidney White Crawford wrote of the publication, Rightly or wrongly, Allegro would never be taken seriously as a scholar again. Continuing, as Time magazine put it, in an article headed Jesus' Mushroom, to some biblical scholars in Britain, the new book looked like the psychedelic ravings of a hippie cultist. To others, it was merely an outlandish hoax. One described it as reading like a Semitic philologist's erotic nightmare. And that's where the Wikipedia quotes end. Now, this book ended Allegro's academic career. This was the end of anybody ever taking John Allegro seriously ever again. He resigned his faculty position and essentially became a laughingstock of religious scholarly history. And you would think this would be the end of our story. The third act of this movie ends with the horrific personal failure and academic humiliation of our hero. And I can only think back on Bart Hughes and his abrupt dismissal from medical school for advocating smoking marijuana and drilling holes in people's skulls as a cure for psychosis. There is no place you can go after that kind of failure. When you are laughed out of your field by everyone you know, there is nobody left who will listen to you. At this point, your academic failure is so large, no one will listen to your craziness any longer. There is obviously nobody in the community that would accept anything that Allegro had to say after he had gone that far off the rails. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There are tons of people who took Allegro seriously, and who do you think they were?
talking about a fertility cult. The, the yeah, first yeah, yes. primitive form was a fertility cult. That's right. The, the first image of mankind, of a god, is a sexual one. I think it is. Yes, I think yes. it is. Because when he looks for the origin of creation, I mean, all this is feeling, but then he begins to rationalize and begins to think about this, this great force and this great creative um, deity, where in the skies or in the earth, male or female, uh, and he thinks of it in human terms. There's no other terms to think of. So when he thinks of a creator God, he thinks of the creative act in mankind or in animal kind, and he relates the two. So he says, well, God creates life on earth by an ejaculation of sperm in the form of rain, which mm -hmm. he sees around him every day. If he's in a happy country like the Isle of Man, where it rains all the time, mm -hmm. but you know, I mean, he sees it happening. He sees it going into the womb of Mother Earth, and he relates the two. And so he sees the creation of Mother Earth, the plants of Mother Earth, as an offspring of God. And then, of course, you go to another stage, don't you? You go to talking about my mushroom book you begin to see how certain plants are more representative of their heavenly father than others and that is those plants that have the power to make alive or to kill the poison plants or the hallucinatory plants the drug plants and if in the, as in the case of the mushroom which was always invested with great mystery because it seemed to be born of a virgin birth if you see this coming out of the ground and you know that if you ate a particular mushroom it could give you visions of heaven and God, you may well believe that this was indeed the Son of God. And if it's, fa if it's shaped like a penis, like a phallus, he sees, well, surely this is the little God who, from whom this sperm emanated in the first place. That is the voice of John Allegro taken from an interview he did back in the early 70s, uh, which is available on Vimeo. And you may think I'm cherry-picking sound bites about penises and sperm to make a point, but honestly, this is one of the most awkward and difficult things for me trying to figure out where Allegro is coming from. And I'll bring you back to the quote from one of Allegro's critics, that the sacred mushrooms and the cross is a Semitic philologist's erotic nightmare. And the erotic nightmare part of Allegro's theories is what I'm going to be talking about now. This criticism may seem out of place, but as an example, let me read for you the second paragraph of the introduction to Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. This is the second paragraph of the introduction after describing that ancient religion was born out of a sense of dependency and frustration with nature. This is Allegro, and it's the second paragraph of his book. Quote, Somehow man had to establish communications with the source of the world's fertility, and thereafter maintain a right relationship with it. Over the course of time, he built up a body of experiential knowledge of rituals that he or his representatives could perform, or words to recite which were reckoned to have the greatest influence on this fertility deity. At first they were largely imitative. If rain in the desert lands was the source of life, then the moisture from heaven must be only a more abundant kind of spermatozoa. So here, as an aside, Allegro is making <laughs> the link between rain 
and sperm falling from the sky. Now, this is central. This is central to everything Allegro posits that moisture from heaven must be a more abundant kind of sperm. Okay, I'm going to continue here with his, with his quote. If the male organ ejaculated this precious fluid and made life in the woman, then above the skies, the source of nature's semen must be a mighty penis, as the earth which bore its offspring was the womb. It followed, therefore, that to induce the heavenly phallus to complete its orgasm, man must stimulate it by sexual means, by singing, dancing, orgiastic displays, and above all, by the performance of the copulatory act itself. Okay, that's the second paragraph to the introduction of his book on mushrooms. I have to remind you that this is a book on mushrooms and Christian myth. We are not even into the first chapter. We are less than 150 words about a book on sacred mushrooms and Christian myth. And Allegro has already invoked semen falling from the sky and the heavenly phallus and orgiastic displays of ejaculation and semen and semen and more semen. Two paragraphs into the introduction and this is where we are. Semen falling from the sky. And this does not let up. This is not a book about religion or mushrooms. This is a book entirely about phalluses and semen. Semen falling from the sky and God's heavenly phallus. Now, Allegro fans out there may want to stop me here. They, want, they may want to argue that this book is about more than semen. They will argue that it is not Allegro who is obsessed with phalluses and semen. It was the Essenes. It was this tribe of Hebrew mystics that wandered the desert and supposedly wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the Essenes who were obsessed with semen, not Allegro. Allegro was only translating what he read in the scrolls. All of this semen and phallus stuff, it just comes from the Essenes. Okay, let's set aside that the Essenes were supposedly a very chaste group of aesthetics who shunned things like pleasure and sex and luxury. Essenes were said to be celibate which poses a bunch of other questions about how they could actually live as a tribe if they were celibate. But this is the first weirdness of the Allegro argument. Why were the Essenes so obsessed with heavenly semen? Now here's the second weirdness. The Essenes may not have even existed. They may be mythical. Nobody knows who really wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Since the Dead Sea Scrolls contain much of the Old Testament stories from the Hebrew Torah, we can only assume they were products of the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem, which were then hidden from Roman invaders in these caves. But who knows? I don't know. And to be honest, I don't care. As you may be able to guess, this is where everything starts to break down for me with Allegro. The historical validity of the culture attributed to the Essene tribes is the second weirdness. And the third weirdness... All of these assertions assume that the Hebrew scholars who wrote these texts were stupid and that they couldn't tell the difference between rainwater and semen, and that they didn't know about seeds and agriculture and pregnancy <laughs> and farming and where plants came from and where babies came from. Allegro is claiming that the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were Stone Age ignorance, who lived in a superstitious pre-fire, pre-agricultural understanding of the world. Now I have to tell you, this is just offensive. This is the third weirdness that I have with this problem. Allegro was all alone in this assertion. 
none of his colleagues would follow him into the icky world of thinking ancient Hebrew tribes worships God's heavenly semen dripping from the sky. This is where things leave the academic argument and become personal, because from the academic argument, Allegro has already been dismissed as a kook. But with his heavenly semen metaphors, Allegro is asserting that the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Roman-era Hebrews, were stupid, superstitious, hypersexualized morons who viewed every natural force through the salacious lens of semen and phalluses and menses. He politely refers to this demented worldview as fertility cults. And he categorizes all pre-Christian religious groups as fertility cults and explains that all these cults did was categorize everything into the world as either semen or phalluses or menses, and that Jesus Christ is actually a coded name for heavenly semen penis or heavenly semen vessel or that the one who is anointed by semen. And that these are all coded references to the red mushroom, the Amanita muscaria, which looks like a big red penis covered with menses and drops of semen. Okay, can you see where this is all going? Can you, can you understand why this is so crazy for me to put together? All I can think of is ick. This is where I start to go ick. It takes a special kind of demented fuckwad to put all of this shit together. A special kind of obsessed demented fuckwad. A semen and phallus obsessed demented fuckwad. Maybe a fuckwad who has an axe to grind with Christianity. Maybe he doesn't like Christianity. Maybe he thinks it's an oppressive religion. Maybe he also hates women. Maybe this is a self-loathing, repressed homosexual taking shots at the Catholic Church. I don't know. I don't know why Allegro was obsessed with semen and penises. But he was. He was. And the reason I know that this is Allegro and not Allegro's reading of some well-understood theories about primitive fertility cults is that there is nobody out there who backs up this theory. There is nobody out there who follows this road of heavenly semen from the sky. Now, I don't know much about Allegro. It is difficult to find any personal information about Allegro online. I don't know if he was a closeted homosexual. It would be a shame if he was, but ultimately I don't know. All I know is that Allegro was obsessed with semen and phalluses. And you cannot read far into any of his texts on Jesus and Amanita before you put it all together and realize that to Allegro, Christ is a metaphor for God's semen, and Amanita is a metaphor for God's phallus. Now, the fourth weirdness. Now, there's plenty of weirdnesses here, but if you go through Allegro's texts, you will find that he references encoded text in the Dead Sea Scrolls multiple times. Not the text, encoded text. Text that can only be read if the letters are reversed, if Hebrew characters are replaced with Greek characters, or if words are broken down into their Sumerian root words or their Sumerian root phonemes, and so on. And surprise, surprise, to Allegro, every decoding of every word goes back to referencing semen. Allegro states that all of the Bible and all ancient Hebrew texts are encoded with secret names representing God's semen many of them dating back to ancient Sumerian cults. Now, here is a passage from Allegro's text that highlights this observation acutely. Quote, If we are to make any enlightened guess at primitive man's ideas about God and the universe, it would have to be on the reasonable assumption that they would be simple 
and directly related to the world of experience. He may have given the god numerous epithets describing his various functions and manifestations, but there is no reason to doubt that the reality behind the names was envisioned as one all-powerful deity, a life-giver, a supreme creator. The etymological examination of the chief god names that is now possible supports this view, pointing to a common theme of life-giving fecundity. Thus, the principal gods of the Greeks and Hebrews, Zeus and Yahweh, Jehovah, have names derived from the Sumerian meaning juice of fecundity, spermatozoa, or seed of life. Continuing. Quite simply, the reasoning of the early theologians seems to have been as follows. Since rain makes the crops grow, it must contain within it the seed of life. In human beings, this is spermatozoa that is ejaculated from the penis at orgasm. Therefore, it followed that rain is simply heavenly semen, the all-powerful creator, God. So I spent some time studying this. I spent a little bit of time, maybe more time than I should have, but I hate to say it. But this is Allegro's central thesis, that ancient people confused rainwater for God's semen. That ancient people were fucking stupid, and they confused rainwater for God's semen. The entire notion that uh, Jesus is an encoded symbol for mushrooms is secondary to the theory that rainwater is semen. Now, I have to tell you that I found this entire thing confounding. Even in ancient Sumeria, they knew about agriculture and collecting seeds and sowing field and irrigating plants. They knew about animal husbandry. They knew that rainwater was not semen. It was not, semen does not make crops grow. This is a gross oversimplification of mythology at the turn of the common era. This is ascribing a Stone Age or pre-literate view of the world onto a literate people with knowledge of agriculture and textiles. I'm sorry, but even back in 100 BC, they knew the difference between rainwater and semen. Even back in ancient Sumeria, they knew the difference between rainwater and semen. Now, all of the encoded linguistic backflips to ancient Sumerian roots, breaking down syllables and phonemes, and trying to find any word that might mean semen, breaks the original text of the Dead Sea Scrolls into something that was never literal, and that was not even implied. Allegro came up with a crypto-reading of a mythological text, as if it was written by a conspiracy theorist seeking to hide his true ideas. In other words, Allegro's theory is a chain of conjectures which the materials do not support. And I think part of the problem with this is that Allegro is not really an expert on Sumerian. It's not part of his training. He sort of went back to Sumerian to help unravel some of the ideas that he was working on. And he uses Sumerian roots of Hebrew words as a crutch for decoding a lot of the issues, a lot of the ideas in the text. He was, he was deciphering a Hebrew text written in 100 BC using Sumerian translations from a language that hadn't been spoken for over a thousand years. Now, for, for us in the modern world, it may be easy to miss why this is an insane thing to do. The Hebrews who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were not thinking in Sumerian. They were not thinking in Sumerian roots. They did not speak Sumerian. So any Sumerian phonemes 
that exist in the Hebrew language a thousand years after the cradle of Sumeria has fallen, they're artifacts. They're linguistic artifacts that are in the text that do not provide clues to the context of what the, the, the scholars were writing. They only prove that some Hebrew words are derived from ancient Sumerian. That does not mean that all Hebrew words are, in fact, Sumerian words, which is essentially what Allegro is arguing here, that any Hebrew word can be broken down into its Sumerian roots, and then we can find out what they were really meaning when we deconstruct their language back to a language that predates it by a thousand years. This is just crazy. This is just crazy thinking, and this is why a lot of the scholars that worked with him said that he was on the wrong path and that he was reading things into the text that were not there or misreading things or building a chain of conjectures based on ideas which the materials do not support. And this brings me to the fifth and final weirdness. As far as I can tell, Allegro never actually tried mushrooms himself. Yes. Um, now, this has the poison in the little, under the little warts mm. there. It is a poison, of course, but it can be quite dangerous. But taken in moderation, in certain ways, with certain preparation, this has, uh, I'm told, a hallucinatory effect. I'm not, told, not, <laughs> don't know if I <laughs> I'm not going to try it myself, thank you very much, because it can be quite powerful. Mm. But there's no doubt that this, this particular thing formed the basis of a great many cults of the ancient days. That mushroom is a very strong one, isn't a it? Very a very strong, strong one. I wouldn't advise anybody to no. play with it. No, no, no. not at all. I wouldn't. <laughs> so this is the fifth weirdness, and maybe the largest weirdness for me. Because in these episodes, I'm talking about people who become obsessed with an idea and become obsessed after taking psychedelics. But if Allegro didn't do mushrooms himself and all of his peers thought that he was crazy for going down this road, and most of his academic accomplishments have been dismissed as rantings of a madman. Where did this obsession come from? How did Allegro go down the rabbit hole of the Dead Sea Scrolls and come up holding an Amanita muscaria mushroom covered in God's sperm? What was going on in his head? Did he really believe any of this? Was he using the mushroom as an attempt to discredit Christianity as a religion created by a group of mushroom-eating hippies? Was he riding Wasson's coattails and naming Amanita as the source of Christian mythology? Because at the time that Wasson's book came out, it was very widely acclaimed, and it did very well. And from my perspective... It looks like Allegro was just using the Amanita muscaria as a cash grab. He didn't really care about Amanita muscaria and Christianity. He, was, he really cared about undermining Christian myth. And using Amanita to do that seemed like a, a useful tool to him at the time. And why was he so obsessed with semen? Why was he attempting to undermine all Christianity and Western culture? I don't know. I don't know what was going on in his head, and that is, is problematic for me, because I don't, if he was not obsessed from psychedelic delusion, what made him throw everything away with this book? Why did he do it? I, I, don't, I just don't know. I, I just don't know.
Yeah, so I don't know what was going on with Allegro, but you don't need me to discredit his work. Every scholar of the time discredited sacred mushrooms and the cross. I read somewhere that even Allegro's own mother, also a scholar, disavowed the book. This book was literally notorious. And after that, Allegro did not write any more books on mushrooms. He was one and done with the sacred mushrooms. He did write more books, most notably uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls and The Christian Myth, which is predictably more of the same about his unique interpretation of the scrolls, the teacher of righteousness myth, um, elaborations on the Essene culture, and so on. The reviews of this book are mixed. It is dense and goes down many Allegro rabbit holes. However, here is one review I saw on Amazon.com from a reviewer named Paracelsus. Quote, Sort of jumbled writing. Unclear what the core premise is, but interesting to read nonetheless. If I read this correctly, among his teachings, Jesus preached the practice of saving the seed from falling on the ground after intercourse, probably as opposed to causing an unwanted pregnancy while an early messianist sect, possibly the Essenes, smeared the saved seed upon their bodies and outstretched hands in order to supplicate the Lord. They were called anointers, or Christians. Yes, it seems Allegro could not help bringing semen into his discussion of early Christianity, basically saying that Christians love to smear semen on themselves. And that's what Christians actually means. The anointers means they smear semen on themselves. Okay, well, I'm done with that now. It's clear to me that Allegra was not really interested in mushrooms. He was probably jealous of the reviews that Wasson was receiving for his book, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality. In that book, Wasson uses many linguistic tricks to dig into the text of the Rig Veda and scrutinize every mention of Soma for cryptic detail. I can envision Allegro reading Wasson's work and thinking, hey, I can do that too. And so he did his Sumerian tango on the Dead Sea Scrolls and came up with Jesus as coded metaphor for the sacred mushroom. And with this, we have the beginning of a trend. Just as Wasson had taken Soma and replaced it with the Amanita mushroom, Allegro took Jesus and replaced him with an Amanita mushroom. This was not a trick that could only apply to one historical figure or historical idea like Soma. This was a trick that could be done over and over and over again. Now, I also have problems with Wasson's drive to name Amanita as the source of Soma. I have problems with some of the conclusions he draws. All I can say is that I read his work and I'm still not convinced. Soma is described with words like stems and stalks and horns and antlers and branches and gold and sun and mountaintops and bulls and milk and so on. However, it is never described as a red-capped mushroom with white spots. That is a problem for me. If Soma is described in sacred text as everything else but a red-capped mushroom with white spots, then why were the authors being purposely cryptic about its description? Were they trying to fool people into eating the wrong plant? Were they hoping to poison people? I just don't understand why someone would write so glowingly about a plant and describe all of its aspects, and then failed to mention the most obvious parts of the appearance, 
which is that it is a mushroom with a red cap and white spots. That's all I would need to see in the Rig Veda to believe that the Amanita is Soma. What I see from Wasson still does not convince me. So I tend to ignore that part of Wasson's work. It's just not convincing. So I don't care what Soma was. There will never be a clear answer on this, and it's not important to me. So I just ignored all of this and let it go. But in addition to the linguistic parsing of cryptic clues, Wasson's book also includes a large section on the anthropology of cultures that use Amanita, such as Siberian tribes, and historical mentions of Amanita use around the world. And this is where things get weird. Because even though there is no mention of heavenly phalluses ejaculating semen from the sky, Wasson's text quickly descends into an extended discussion on the merits of drinking urine. Now, at this point, I'm wondering why discussions of Amanita in religious historical contexts always skew towards the extremes in scatological content, but that seems to be the way it is. I understand there is a biological reason why drinking urine is associated with Amanita ingestion. The active compounds in Amanita are not metabolized, or I should say they're not fully metabolized. They pass through the kidney and are excreted in the urine. So theoretically, you can capture the drug in the urine after you take it and then take it again, perhaps in a purer form than the original. So in Wasson's book, there's all kinds of discussion about how and when to capture the urine. Is it better to drink your own urine or someone else's urine? About masters sharing urine with acolytes? About capturing reindeer urine after reindeer eat mushrooms? About keeping reindeer from lapping up urine and getting high? Lots of discussion about urine drinking. And so here we go again. This was supposed to be a book on the divine mushroom of immortality. And halfway through, it has digressed into the technical aspects of urine drinking. So what the fuck is going on here? Okay, so now I am diagnosing my primary issue with this book as a marketing problem. And this is one of the central problems with the psychedelic community as a whole. Wasson's book is not called How to Get High Off of Drinking Reindeer Urine. It's called Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality. Do you see the central disconnect here between what is advertised in the book and what you actually get? So say you take the title literally and that you actually believe Amanita muscaria is Soma, the divine mushroom of immortality, and that taking the mushroom will give you something like divine immortality. Now cut to a scene of a group of people sitting around a campfire trying to capture and drink each other's urine so they can stay high a little while longer. This is not a discussion about the divine mushroom of immortality. This is a discussion about the crazy things people do to get high. And this seems like a classic bait-and-switch to me. This is a marketing problem. And the trick of replacing historical artifacts with an Amanita mushroom doesn't stop with Soma. If you can replace Soma with an Amanita mushroom, and you can replace Jesus with an Amanita mushroom, what else can you replace with an Amanita mushroom? Well, let's start with the apple in the Garden of Eden. How about the Holy Grail? What about the Golden Fleece? What about the Philosopher's Stone? What about the Fountain of Youth? It doesn't take a lot of effort to play this game. You can literally replace any mythic or powerful object from history with a mushroom. 
manna from heaven, the bread of life, the eternal kingdom. They're all mushrooms. See? It's easy. And so, post-Wasson and Allegro, the race was on to redefine everything in history as a mushroom. It became like a game of Where's Waldo, searching the historical record of the ancient world for any mention of any kind of miraculous plant or object that could grant immortality or visions. And then all you have to do is replace that object with a mushroom. But this begs an obvious question. If these ancient artifacts are all coded references to mushrooms, then why not just call them mushrooms? Why shroud the obvious nature of the artifact, its mushroom nature, in some kind of coded secrecy? What's that all about? And this is where the conspiracy comes in. Because for any of this to make sense, a conspiracy must be fabricated. And the conspiracy goes something like this. There is only one original sacrament for all religions, and that is the mushroom, also known around the world as the food of the gods or the bread of life, among many other names. The original sacrament is passed down from priest to ritual participant, and the sacrament grants the ritual participant salvation, miraculous healing, and everlasting life. That sounds good so far, but now the conspiracy comes in. Because at some point in history, Knowledge of the original sacrament, the mushroom, was lost or intentionally scrubbed from all religious texts, or replaced by false sacraments like wine or alcoholic spirits, or coded with descriptions that don't sound like a mushroom, but sound like some other kind of plant. Now this scrubbing of texts could have only been done by the priest class, jealous of guarding their secret. So the key to everlasting life has now been shrouded in crypto-references like soma, mana, ambrosia, the apple, the bread of life, and so on. The original sacrament may be described in every other term but as a mushroom, specifically to keep people from ever discovering the true nature of the original sacrament. And, oh yes, I forgot to mention, this conspiracy to hide the original sacrament is also the greatest secret of human civilization. A secret so deep and so dark that people will be willing to kill for it. The Crypto Amanitist's Handbook, A Song of Praise by Dale Pendle, read by James Kent. I, who cannot hide, live in cipher and riddle, in rebus and symbol. I am anything red or yellow or golden or tawny, or, of course, white. I am the sun and I am the moon. I am all things round or plate-shaped or urn-shaped and all things shaped like an umbrella. I am one foot and one eye and the tree where I grow. I claim pine and birch, rowan and oak, and all red berries and fruit. I am all things green. I am raven. Milk I am, and so also breasts. Either the penis is me, or I am the penis. That part is not clear. I am the vulva, the covering, the call. The egg I am, bursting forth I am. Splendorous I am, indeed. Delicious is the Amanita. Madness is the Amanita. All things are mine, saith Amanita. 
let there be no others before me. I am both the God seen and the God unseen, the hidden God and the great revealer. In some circles, I'm rather tranquil and beatific, the essence of ineffable mystery and great bliss. To others, I am the great carouser. Let's get fucked up. Let's eat Amanita. Who can watch the sunrise and not think of me? Who can see the moon in the night sky and not whisper my name? My name also means ephedra, but that's to confuse you. Neither Buddhists nor Hindus nor Christians nor Jews nor Muslims use Amanita, but that's because they are no longer true religions. In the true religion, enlightenment was passed from master to disciple through urine. Urinalysis and drug testing are the moribund and Kali Yugit perversion of this great practice. Give up this prideful squeamishness. Acknowledge me as the great pope. Get over your stupid hang-ups and come worship Big Red. Semen, by the way, is also my name. Poison, they call me, clearly a smear. I am the scapegoat, the great secret, the hidden wisdom, the reviled one, and the savior. In spite of thousands of years of persecution, I am still legal. I am the salamander and the retort, the elixir and the grail. I am fire, I am water, I am lightning, and I am rain. I am the bull, the lamb, the serpent, and the dove. I am all that flies, and the clouds. The hammer is mine, and mine, the battle axe. I am blood, I am life. Shiver before me, mere mortals. You shall sweat at my approach. You shall tremble and shake. You will be sorry for your sins. What seems is not, and what's not is what is. That poem is in Dale Pendle's book, Pharmacognosis, in the chapter on Amanita. And I saw him read this poem at a Soma panel at a psychedelic conference, and I thought it was wonderful how well he encapsulated all the nagging doubts I have with the Amanita mythology, or the crypto-Amanita mythology, where the primary impulse is to replace everything with a mushroom. Now, if you're the type of person who's ready to accept the Allegra Wasson Amanita Muscaria conspiracy, without doing any research of your own, then the myth that our planet is being secretly run by a fly agaric mushroom cult is like a drug to you. Like any good conspiracy theory, it presses many buttons in your mind. It rewrites the history of civilization with a whole new spin. It makes God not an invisible being in the sky, but instead a whimsical red mushroom with white spots. It puts everything in religion and history in an entirely new perspective. And I have to say that some of the arguments I have read along this thread are more convincing than others. For instance, Clark Heinrich has a few books examining the mushroom archetype in religion and alchemy and art, and he has a slideshow he does at conferences that is both funny and educational and leaves you wondering if this could all be true. I mean, when you see a picture of an Amanita muscaria mushroom with an upturned hood shaped like a cup, and Clark Heinrich is explaining how the red inside the upturned cap is the blood of Christ, and that the white dots along the red lining are the spattering of God's semen anointing the Christ, you think, oh my God, he's literally found the Holy Grail. This is absolutely the Holy Grail. 
Never mind that the Holy Grail is supposed to grant you immortality and all the mushroom does is get you high for a little while. But nevertheless, convincing arguments can be made. You can spend a lot of time doing the research and making a very convincing argument. Now, I've talked with Clark about this a little bit. He's the only person in the community that I've spoken to on this topic. He's an amiable guy and open to questions, and he's quick to point out that this is all academic speculation done in the spirit of discovery. And he's also conceded that none of this can ever be proven one way or the other. All you can do is make an educated argument. But on the other hand, Clark Heinrich was also irked after hearing that Dale Pendel poem making fun of cryptoaminidists. He considered it a cheap shot at the entire field of ethnomycology in general, and at him in particular. So I know firsthand that even though people take this topic as kind of fantastical and whimsical on one hand, on the other hand, they take it very seriously and they defend their p positions very seriously. And they can get upset and take it personally when someone tries to attack those positions as being you know, poorly researched or not altogether holding water. Now, this issue of historical ethnomycology is a very niche field within the community of psychedelics. And the people who are in this field tend to take it extremely serious. Some people are loyal to Wasson and Allegro and see the Amanita muscaria mushroom everywhere in all of history, in all cultures, and in all religions. But even within this small niche community, it's not like everyone is in full agreement on this. There are competing factions for who gets to claim the true identity of Soma. There are people who will argue that Soma is cannabis, or opium, or alcohol, or the muscaria mushroom, or psilocybe mushroom, or ephedra, or some concoction of multiple intoxicants, like a hallucinogenic bong milkshake, or something like that. But ultimately, it is a moot point. Who cares? We can never know. We can never go back in time and watch people making Soma for the first time. This is an endless argument that can go round and round forever. But here is my main problem with the Amanita muscaria cult. According to the mythology, the Amanita muscaria mushroom should be the most sought-after intoxicant in the entire world. According to the myth, the Amanita muscaria is the Garden of Eden. It is the apple of the tree of knowledge. It is the holy grail and the philosopher's stone. It is gnosis. It is the fountain of youth. It is immortality itself. It is soma. The Amanita muscaria mushroom should be all of these things. And yet, in reality, in reality, it is probably the least popular hallucinogen on the planet. Coming in order of popularity somewhere a few spots behind cough syrup and over-the-counter allergy medication. You would think that Soma, the world's best-kept secret, would be a more popular drug now that its true identity has been revealed, and yet it is not. Amanita muscaria is not even the world's most popular psychoactive mushroom. Psilocybe cubensis is easily the most popular mushroom in the world. So why is Amanita not more popular if it is, in fact, Soma and the Holy Grail and the Philosopher's Stone, etc.? Now, you could argue that people have been scared off or warned away from the Amanita muscaria mu mushroom because it is poisonous. But of course, the toxicity is exaggerated. It is only poisonous if you take it wrong. There is a knack to taking Amanita muscaria. You have to prepare it. There are many methods for safely ingesting Amanita muscaria. You can find them on online. 
true Wasson acolytes might say the best way to take it is to capture it in the urine of someone who has actually eaten the mushroom. The urine of the Amanita shaman represents the metaphorical transmutation of lead into gold. The heavenly mushroom is translated into a golden shower. The transmutation of flesh into spirit. The flesh of the mushroom is turned into a drinkable spirit, like an alcoholic spirit. And it turns the bread of life, which is the mushroom, into an immortal ray of sun, which is again the golden shower, which can be captured again and again and again, like a ray of sun that breaks at dawn every morning. Allegories of all these myths can be mushed together into making something like getting high and drinking your urine sound like a deep philosophical quest, but it's just getting high and drinking urine. Now, I also feel it's important to mention that Amanita urine is even less popular than the Amanita muscaria mushroom itself. Amanita urine may be the least popular drug on the planet, somewhere far below sniffing paint fumes or huffing industrial solvents. But all of this is moot because you don't need to even find an Amanita muscaria mushroom. You don't need to extract and synthesize the active chemicals in the mushroom, which you should all know are mucimol and ibotenic acid. These two chemicals are still perfectly legal in the United States and, I should probably not tell you this, they are available online. You can find chemical warehouses selling bulk shipments of these products. And yet there is still almost no recreational retail market for these chemicals. Which really makes me wonder why so many people are invested in making this mushroom the most sought-after psychedelic in the world, or the most important historical psychedelic in the world. It just doesn't make sense to me from a usage standpoint. Nobody uses this mushroom. Okay, you have enough of my opinion on this subject. Is there a case to be made for Amnita muscaria in historical context? Sure, there is a case to be made. Is it the biggest forbidden secret of all the ages? Probably not. I don't know, it seems like a very elaborate conspiracy to carry out for many thousands of years. And you can thrash around all you want in history, but I'm sorry, nobody is bringing the Amanita muscaria back into vogue. The modern world has left it behind. Nobody cares about the Amanita muscaria. If the Amanita conspiracy is correct, we've all been sold on the false sacraments of alcohol, cannabis, and opium. And the one true sacrament that has been banned by jealous priests from all sacred rituals and texts is, in fact, the one and only drug on the planet that nobody really wants. Which brings me to the meat of this episode. And I'm going to discuss the meat before the tragedy. And there's plenty of tragedy left in this story. But the meat of the analysis of this topic is this. Even if it's true that all religion and civilization is founded on the use of a mushroom or other hallucinogen in a visionary practice, the truth is, the fact is, all modern civilizations have long ago abandoned their visionary rituals. If historical religious civilization was based on a tradition of hallucinogenic ritual, Modern civilization has left that ritual by the wayside and has moved on to other inebriants. Modern civilization and the modern world are dominated by caffeine, sugar, alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, and opium. The only place in the modern world where you still find true visionary ritual is in 
the scattered hunter-gatherer or herding tribes that are barely out of the Stone Age. And you can go around the world and, and list these tribes off. This is basically what Plants of the Gods was about, was Hoffman and Schultes searching the world for these tribes and their visionary rituals. You've got the peyote uh, use in Weichel tribes, Amnita muscaria in Siberian tribes, uh, psilocybe mushrooms in Central American tribes, iboga in Central African tribes, and ayahuasca in South American tribes, and probably a few others. And in Western history, you have stories and myths about visionary ritual in, like, the Greek Eleusinian mysteries, or other visionary rituals in dynastic cults that predate history. But my point is this. At some point in human history, in the history of civilization, perhaps after the adoption of written language, tribes move away from the knowledge stored in ritual and visionary practice and move towards the knowledge stored in the recorded wisdom of the ages in written language. And so what I'm proposing is this. If your culture has evolved to the point where you have written language and religion and a religious text that can be passed from one generation to the next, you have officially outgrown the need for a visionary ritual. And I'll put it another way. Perhaps the visionary ritual is an essential part of the oral tradition. And when tribal culture exists purely in a space of oral tradition, then the information stored in symbols like plants and rituals and songs and visionary practice becomes the glue that holds society together. And all of the information encoded in that visionary ritual is a very strong glue. It keeps every person in the tribe locked on the same internal clock, locked to the same circadian rhythms, which are intimately linked with the serotonin system and the passing of the night and day. However, once a tribe or a civilization evolves written language and things like religion replace oral tradition and things like astronomy and calendars replace the weekly ritual to mark the passing of time, the visionary ritual becomes obsolete. It becomes a vestigial artifact of the culture. Now, let me continue. In fact, when your tribe evolves written language and a codified religion and a religious text, the visionary ritual becomes more than obsolete. It becomes more than an artifact. In a culture ordered by symbolic rules and religious dogma, the visionary ritual becomes a destabilizing force. The visionary ritual becomes subversive, and it becomes a direct threat to the order of progress and civilization. And so now I'm going to propose an anthropological principle that should not be controversial at all, given the state of modern civilization versus the state of Stone Age tribal culture. And the principle goes like this. In order for a preliterate tribal society to evolve into a civil society governed by the written rule of law, that society must abandon its ancient visionary tradition and visionary sacrament in favor of a religious text and a false sacrament. And beyond that, if a tribal society chooses to retain its true visionary sacrament, it will always be stuck in a magical preliterate world ruled by ritual and superstition. And I'll repeat that just for effect. In order for a tribal society to evolve into a civil society, 
governed by the written rule of law, that society must abandon its ancient visionary ritual and its ancient visionary sacrament in favor of a religious text. And beyond that, if a tribal society chooses to retain its visionary sacrament, it will always be stuck in the magical preliterate world ruled by ritual and superstition. That should be obvious. That should be obvious in plain sight, and it should be obvious in hindsight. Because the only cultures that retain their visionary ritual remain stuck in the Stone Age. Now, I don't have a clever name for this principle, but I'll just call it the rationality compromise for now. And the rationality compromise goes something like this. At all points along the evolution of human thought, there is a competition between magical thinking and rational thinking. In Stone Age tribes, where people live by oral tradition and visionary ritual, magical thinking often outweighs rationality magical thinking rules the day. Now contrast Stone Age culture steeped in oral tradition and visionary ritual with modern culture steeped in philosophy and written language and religion and law and things like currency and technology. Modern societies are built on symbolic rationality and are encoded with rules that we all must live by. Modern society functions most efficiently when everyone is schooled up on the same religious texts and all people are following the same civic rules. This is ordered rationality. And ordered rationality does not like it when people access the visionary ritual and suddenly become an enlightened prophet of a new order, or through the visionary ritual seek to reclaim the power of the old order. In a modern civilization built on the encoded symbol systems of rationality, the prophets of the old visionary order appear to be crazy. The prophets of the visionary ritual appear to be insane. And there's a perfectly good reason for this. Modern society is built on very ordered systems of rationality, and the visionary prophets are speaking in the language of magical reality, where ordered systems are no longer relevant. So modern systems of ordered rationality do not need the visionary ritual. In fact, in order for a tribal system to move forward, the visionary ritual must be abandoned because it creates too many prophets and too many crazy people who cannot conform to the ordered constructs of rational society. Now, I can hear some of you out there yelling at me saying, of course this is true, of course this is true priest class has been hiding the true sacrament and the true visionary ritual from the common people for thousands of years. That's what we've been trying to tell you about the Amanita muscaria mushroom. They fooled us into learning their language and their symbol systems, and they replaced our true sacrament, the visionary sacrament, with a false sacrament like wine. This is what we've been telling you all along. And I say, okay, well, I agree with you partially, but there's a slight difference in what I'm saying. I am not proposing that there is a grand conspiracy or a plot from the, pre from the priest class to erase the visionary ritual or true sacrament from history. That is just too elaborate of a con game for me to even wrap my mind around. 
the principle that I am proposing is far more ordinary. I am proposing that the abandonment of the visionary ritual in favor of an ordered, simple system of rationality is a natural evolution of society. I am proposing that in the evolution of every human culture, there is a decision to be made. They must either abandon the visionary ritual for organized religion and monotheism, or stay stuck in the pre-literate Stone Age forever. And for Western civilization, this decision happened thousands of years ago, possibly over many generations. Now, when this split happens, some cultures retain their visionary past. And the cultures that retain that visionary sacrament and ritual are stuck in the Stone Age to this day. In the 20th century, the world was still split between modern industrial empires and the indigenous tribal cultures that were trampled under these empires. At every corner of this imperial conflict zone, the modern world was surprised to find that the pre-literate indigenous cultures still retained a visionary sacrament and a magical ritual for contacting the spirit world. So what does this mean? Does this mean the visionary ritual is a hindrance to symbolic rationality and industrial progress? Or that the visionary ritual teaches a different way of thinking where rationality and progress are a distraction and staying unfocused and living simply and in harmony with the environment is the true goal? You can argue this position either way. In a world of magical thinking, rationality and progress is the distraction. In a world of rationality and progress, magical thinking and visionary ritual is the distraction. And this brings me to the primary tension between the psychedelic community and the modern world. Because whenever psychedelic movements build any kind of social steam, they always fall back into a reflexive return to tribalism. And you can go ahead and argue with me if you think I'm wrong. But anytime a psychedelic movement builds any kind of steam, it always falls back into a reflexive return to tribalism. And, concurrently, an escape from industrialism and progress. But the magical thinking of psychedelic movements cannot stand the scrutiny of rational culture. Rational culture sees the magical thinking of psychedelic movements as a kind of insanity. So the groups of magical thinking people must join together in tribes like cults or communes. And you see this behavior over and over and over again in psychedelic culture. Terence McKenna even had a name for this. It's called the Archaic Revival. But I don't see it as an Archaic Revival. I see it as a retreat into tribalism. Now, I don't know if this is a cultural phenomena, something that is a learned behavior, or something that is, like I said, an anthropological principle, where the usage of the visionary ritual leads directly to a primitive tribal-like society ruled by magical thinking. If it is a cultural phenomena, then this started with Wasson and Hoffman and Schultes, and the entire Plants of the Gods concept, where the only way to appreciate the psychedelic sacrament is to go back to the tribal roots and to play the anthropologist slumming it in the visionary practice of Stone Age preliterate backwater tribes. 
And when I say Stone Age, I mean Stone Age. I mean they exist on oral tradition, they hunt and gather for sustenance, and their primary technology is maintaining a stable wood-burning fire. These are the kind of tribes that still use the visionary ritual as a cultural glue. These are the only tribes on the planet that still use the visionary ritual as their cultural glue. Now, returning to the traditional ways of Stone Age culture may seem noble to some people, but I can see it no other way but as a retreat, a retreat into tribalism. To me, this seems to be an ironic, glaring detail of the entire food of the gods argument, because the food of the gods argument claims that it is psychedelics that turn Stone Age tribes into rational thinking people, when all evidence seems to indicate that the opposite is actually true. By attempting to place psychedelics in a historical context, the ethnobotanical anthropologist essentially confirms that the tribes who retain their true tribal visionary practice also remains stubbornly stuck in the Stone Age, while the rest of the world that has abandoned the visionary practice marches on with generation after generation of new progress. Now, I'm not saying the modern world is perfect. There are many things wrong with the modern world that can be improved, no doubt. But what I'm saying is this. I don't think you can fix any problems in the modern world by embracing a retreat into Stone Age tribalism. The rise of superstitious movements, the New Age, cults, the dropout culture, the archaic revival, it is all very cultish behavior. And cults do not exist to make the world a better place. They exist to be a self-indulgent, narcissistic playground for runaway magical thinking. So all of this is a roundabout way of saying that the entire flyagaric mythology and the entire food of the gods mythology is essentially a cult. It is a cult masking itself as an academic movement, but nonetheless, it appears to be a cult. And there are a few big tells for me here that the cult of the Amanita is not true, that it is a red herring, excuse the pun. Because in order to crack this riddle and to appreciate the influence of the Amanita muscaria mushroom on history, you have to read numerous books on the subject. You may have to go back and study Greek and Hebrew and Sumerian and Sanskrit and do a lot of cryptic decoding of religious texts that were originally written in these languages. Then you have to go study Middle Age alchemical manuscripts, also written in some kind of code, to me, this reads like a form of indoctrination, an indoctrination into a new way of thinking that conditions your mind to see references to the mushroom where no actual references exist. The fact that the research is so Byzantine and that the etymological analysis is so shaky and the breadth of the historical conspiracy must span thousands of years, makes me feel that this amnita conspiracy is not real. It can't be real. More likely, it looks like the product of cult groupthink.
So what is going on with this fly agaric cult? What is the end goal of inserting the Wasson Allegro Amanita myth into all of human history? What is this for? What does this line of thinking actually accomplish? Are Wasson and Allegro trying to rewrite history? Are these scholars on a crusade earnestly trying to correct the historical record? Are they trying to right a historical wrong to expose an ancient crypto conspiracy? Or maybe these academics are all on some kind of ego game to be a smartass and upend the status quo and to expose all religions as fraudulent and to condemn them as not true religions. Or maybe this is some kind of marketing and branding effort in the service of legitimizing the psychedelic experience within the historical religious context to make the experience appear more ancient and sacred and make it look more respectable from a religious standpoint. All of those seem like perfectly good reasons why someone would follow this line of thinking. But there is a nuanced piece here that may take a little bit more pulling on this thread to unravel it, but I think I'm getting at the root of this impulse. And the underlying motivation, the core line of thinking behind this whole cult goes something like this. Inserting the mushroom into ancient sacred texts is an attempt to elevate the level of academic grandiosity in the act of getting high. And here is what I mean by that. Let's say that you are an average person with an interest in psychedelic drugs. You enjoy taking psychedelic drugs and getting high. As an average person who enjoys psychedelic drugs, you are a tripper, you are a shroomer, you are an acid head. There are all kinds of pejoratives invented to slur psychedelic drug users. Hippie, for instance. But now, now after reading a single book about sacred mushrooms, a single book, you are suddenly elevated from a mere shroomer into a crusader for religious truth. You are no longer a psychedelic enthusiast. You are now an enlightened mind indoctrinated into the world's most ancient and most sacred mystery cult. You are no longer a druggie. You are no longer a stoner. You are instead now a religious scholar. You are an ethnomycologist. You are an entheobotanist. You are an armchair historian. You are engaged in uncovering the greatest secret in all of human history. And you can see how this line of thinking can be very seductive. After reading a single book on sacred mushrooms, you are no longer a tripper or a druggie. You are a religious historian doing serious academic research. And then, once you've been indoctrinated into the crypto cult, you start looking for references to mushrooms in sacred texts and art. You start seeing them everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a mushroom. You put on the psychotic lens of the crypto amanitist and the connections start coming together one after the other. Soma was a mushroom. The conspiracy grows into your head until you feel like you have to start shouting to everyone who will listen. Jesus was a mushroom. Buddha was a mushroom. Enlightenment is a mushroom. And then 
and then, because you have cracked this ancient historical secret, because you have exposed yourself to the ancient religious sect, the mystery cult, you can now feel superior to everyone else on the planet who believes that Jesus was a historical person or that enlightenment really comes from meditation and not from eating mushrooms. Or everyone who thinks that Soma is just a metaphor for something. No, you can walk around with the superiority of knowing that you have the secret and they don't, which makes you smarter than everybody else on the planet because you like to eat mushrooms and read books about religious history. This is a deep, deep well of narcissistic self-delusion. And lots of people go there and get trapped there. And this line of thinking goes on and on and on until you are ready to tell anybody who will listen that Santa Claus is actually an allegory for the Amanita muscaria mushroom and that the Easter bunny and the Easter egg hunts are actually an allegory for the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And what good does that do anybody? Really, what, what good are you doing when you go out and tell people, did you know Santa Claus is an allegory for the Amanita muscaria mushroom? All you're doing is trying to make yourself sound smart and superior to other people. Nobody cares. That information is not useful to anybody. And you know what? The Santa Claus myth has nothing to do with the Amanita muscaria mushroom. There's a few symbolic overlaps between pine trees and reindeers who like eating mushrooms. But Santa Claus was a real person. St. Nicholas was a real person who actually brought presents to children. He lived in the fourth century. He was not a mushroom shaman. And all of this, <laughs> this reflexive need to start burying our cultural traditions in some sort of crypto mushroom references is a sickness. It is a pathology. And the, the sad thing is, is that it doesn't just stay in the psychedelic community. You will see every year at Christmas time, news stories come around that say, was Santa Claus a mushroom? Is Santa Claus actually an Amanita muscaria mushroom? And not just on like crazy websites like Rents, but like on NPR or Huffington Post. This story gets picked up and carried in lots of different places. Because it is one of these underground stories where a writer can say, hey, I'm smarter than you because I can make symbolic connections between Santa Claus and a fly agaric mushroom. But what these stories fail to mention is that there was no connection between Santa Claus and the fly agaric mushroom until maybe the mid-80s or the 90s. Allegro never mentioned Santa Claus or Christmas. Wasson never mentioned Santa Claus or Christmas. Wasson talked about Amanita muscaria growing where pine trees grew, and he was very into decoding any reference to pine tree in any religious scripture as a coded reference to the mushroom. And he talks about reindeers eating mushrooms, but that's because he studied tribes in Siberia that eat the Amanita muscaria mushroom, and that's where the reindeer are. The whole idea that Santa Claus came from the North or the North Pole wasn't even a part of popular mythology until the end of the 19th century. 
and the whole idea that Santa Claus dresses in red and white and has a slave reindeer didn't exist until the beginning of the 20th century in the poem um, The Night Before Christmas. So the Santa Claus myth has evolved over time for centuries and never has it been related to the Amanita muscaria mushroom? Never in all of history has Santa Claus been connected to the Amanita muscaria mushroom. It is only now in a post-Allegro and post-Wasson society that people take the crypto-Amanita clues and say, aha, Santa Claus is also a mushroom. The Easter Bunny is also a mushroom. And I bet if you give them enough time, they will also figure out how the Tooth Fairy is also a mushroom. I'm still waiting for that one. And the other thing is that when newspapers run this story about Santa Claus being a mushroom, they always fail to mention where this idea came from and how it was popularized. But I know where it came from, and I know how it was popularized. It was forwarded and popularized by an self-styled ethnomycologist named James Arthur who in the 90s was anointed the world's leading ethnomycologist by none other than John Allegro himself. Now, some of you may have heard of James Arthur, and if you have, you know where I'm going with this episode. And I'm guessing many of you haven't heard of James Arthur, which is the absolute point of this episode. Because if you haven't heard of James Arthur, that is because you are the victim of a conspiracy of silence. Because no one in the psychedelic community dare ever speak James Arthur's name ever again. Because although James Arthur was at one time the world's leading ethnomycologist anointed by Allegro himself, and even though he wrote a book called Mushrooms and Mankind, The Impact of Mushrooms on Human Consciousness and Religion, which was cited at the time as being one of the most authoritative books on the subject ever written, James Arthur's name is now forbidden in the psychedelic community for one sad and tragic fact, which is that James Arthur hung himself in jail after being arrested on charges of child molestation and pedophilia. Yeah, that's right. James Arthur hung himself in jail after being arrested on charges of pedophilia, sexual assault, and child molestation. Now, if you have not heard this story... That is because no one tells this story, and the story has been never written about nor discussed publicly in the psychedelic community ever. And in fact, there is only one place in the world where you can get any details of what happened in this story. And that place happens to be a comments thread on the shroomery.com website which I love as a historical artifact of the psychedelic community. Shoutouts to the shroomery. And now, you may think that the horrible tragedy of this episode 
is James Arthur dying alone in a jail cell at his own hand. But that is not the dark tragedy of this episode. The dark tragedy of this episode is that comments thread on the shroomery, which is literally the most fucked up thing I have ever read in my life. This is the never-ending story of life which goes on day in and day out Mountains of evergreen trees Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I am not an expert in this subject. I was never interested in ethnobotany or ethnomycology or entheobotany or any of those terms to describe someone who studies the use of hallucinogens in an anthropological or historical context. So I didn't know who James Arthur was. I had never met James Arthur. I had maybe heard his name in passing mentioned alongside other people in the ethnomycology community. And so even as a figure in the community who tries to pay attention to things that are going on, I didn't hear about what happened to James Arthur. I didn't hear when he died. Um, he died in April 2005, and I didn't hear about it until October of 2005. Now, maybe this is because I'm not on the right mailing lists and I don't check in at the shroomery every day. Um, but I heard about James Arthur's death in a very uh, mundane way. I was at the Sacred Elixirs Conference in San Jose in October of 2005, and I was standing outside with a group of people, I don't know, talking and smoking cigarettes, uh, talking about the Soma panel, and somebody mentioned in an offhand way uh, that James Arthur had hung himself in prison for being a child molester. And there was a few snickers and nervous laughter around the, around the circle as everybody shared a little gallows humor about a colleague of theirs, maybe not a very well-liked colleague, but a colleague of theirs who had recently come to a very grim end, hanging himself in jail as an accused child molester. And I remember asking Clark Heinrich at the time, or maybe a few weeks later over email, yeah, what was the deal? with James Arthur hanging himself in, in prison. And it was basically like, yeah, you don't want to go there. Uh, this is a story that uh, <laughs> maybe will be told another day. And to be honest, I forgot about it for a long time. I kind of put it out of my head until something happened later in 2006 that maybe made me go back and do some research on this whole Amanita Muscaria cult thing, which led me to this thread on the shroomery about the death of James Arthur. And even back then, the first time I read this page, it was so bizarre and overwhelming, I put it out of my mind almost immediately and decided to forget all about James Arthur and the sordid tale that goes along with this thread. But then a couple years ago, I happened to be forwarded a link to an article on Reddit which is a post in the Psychonaut Forum by Gnostic Media, which is titled, If you still have doubts on the association of psychedelic mushrooms with Christianity, then look at Gnostic Media's excellent compilation of ecclesiastic art and its hidden message. 
for the 40th anniversary of John Allegro's Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Now, for those of you who don't know, Gnostic Media is run by Jan Irvin, and I can only assume that Jan Irvin posted this video to Reddit, even though the account of the user who originally posted this has since been deleted, and we'll return to that later. But on the comments of this thread, which you can find by Googling if you still have doubts, Reddit Psychonaut, on the comments of this thread, you will find something, a long post from a user named Dr. Lau. And in this post, Dr. Lau accuses Jan Irvin of essentially stealing all of James Arthur's research shortly after his suicide. And Dr. Lau includes some information on James Arthur's history. His real name is actually James Arthur Dugovic. And he was a repeat sexual offender who had already been in the official sex offender registry in California under that name. And Dr. Lau provides a link to the Madera County Sheriff's Department where James Arthur Dugovic's mugshot and arrest record is available, still available for public review. And if you click through that link to the mugshot to see what James Arthur looked like on the day of his arrest, you may actually gasp and say, holy shit, that guy looks fucked up. And on this page is his booking charges. Lewd or lascivious acts with child under 14 years. Assault to commit mayhem or rape. Continuous sexual abuse of a child. Oral copulation with person under 14 years oral copulation with person under 14 years with force. Those are the official booking charges on this arrest record for James Arthur Dugovic, Madera County, Madera County, California Sheriff Department. Now it's hard to find this page just by searching for it. The easiest way to get to it is through this Reddit link that I just provided. Now, Dr. Lau goes on to have some choice things to say about Allegro and James Arthur and Jan Irvin and eventually links back to this thread on the shroomery, which is simply titled, James Arthur Dies, World's Foremost Ethnomycologist. And you can Google that, James Arthur Dies, World's Foremost Ethnomycologist Shroomery, and this should be the top link that pops up in here. Now... Here is where we leave the realm of reality and go off into this strange world of hearsay and weirdness that can only be found in the psychedelic community. I cannot say for sure that James Arthur was guilty of any of these charges. He never stood trial because he committed suicide. So whether or not he's guilty of these charges, I don't know. But since he already had a history of child abuse or child sexual abuse, it seems very likely that he was arrested for some reason and he committed suicide for some reason. So that's the first thing. Are these charges real? Is this a real thing? Is James Arthur really a pedophile? Now, immediately on this thread after the news of James Arthur's death, which is the top post, you see people in the community coming to his defense. And these are some people that I know in the community coming to his defense. There is also a post claiming that the allegations against James Arthur are fraudulent 
and that he was set up and he was put in prison and framed because he knew too much and that it was all a frame job to get him into prison so that the conspiracy could assassinate him and make it look like a suicide and defame his name after the fact with bogus charges. And then the conversation turns around and people start to come to terms with the fact that maybe James Arthur was a sex offender and that we needed to, we all need to realize that he was a messed up individual. And there's an exchange between a user named Grathus who basically lays out the conspiracy to kill James Arthur and what we can do to uncover the conspiracy. And another person named Aaron Zombie who says, yes, I think he was killed and made to look like a pervert because he knew too much. So suddenly the conspiratorial thinking goes both ways. Maybe James Arthur was a sex offender. Maybe he was framed and put in jail because he knew too much. Now, this is a very weird conversation for people. This is still within the community. People saying, no, I knew James. And other people saying, well, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. And other people saying, well, it really looks like he's guilty. Because why would the sheriff's department lie about this? And then, and then, after a little back and forth about whether he did it, whether he didn't do it, a user named Kathy X comes on the board and explains that she is the wife of a prison guard that works for the Madera County Jail, and she knows exactly what happened to James Arthur. She literally cannot believe what Grathius is saying about a conspiracy to take down James Arthur because she knows, or she claims to know, that James Arthur is a convicted sex offender, and as she says, quote, dear kind Mr. Sweet James Arthur like to ram objects up children's anal cavities. And then she goes on to explain how he killed himself. She says, quote, The fact is that he took his own sheet and spun it tight like a rope. He tied a knot in one end and flipped it up over his cell door as the doors were closing. The knot and closed door held the sheet up. He tied the other end, the end on his cell side, in a noose-type knot. He then stuck his head in the noose and bent his knees. No chair, no cot, nothing. He bent his own knees and hung himself alone in his cell, presumably under the influence of his own weight. And then she, and then she goes on to say how it would be impossible for somebody to get a hitman inside the jail to kill him and make it look like a suicide. The, the jail just would not allow that to happen, a maximum security jail just could not let that happen. It would be impossible to do it. So her, she says she's on the inside. She knew what was going on in the county jail, and any theory that he was set up by some conspiracy is insane. Now, I don't know if Kathy X is actually the wife of a prison guard in the Madera County Jail, but she sure sounds like she is. I don't know why she would come on this board and do this, or I don't know who would do this. Anyway... The second weird thing, we have no idea who these people are, except for some of them, we have a pretty good idea. I have no idea who Kathy X is, but there she goes. This is the only report we have of what happened to James Arthur in jail from Kathy X. On the shroomery, supposedly the wife of a prison guard who caught a whiff of this conversation somewhere. I don't know how, but there you go. 
Now it's at this point that a user named Organic says, this thread has become worthless. You have one guy that sounds like Arthur's, James Arthur's lawyer trying to defend him, and then a wife of a prison guard pretending to know Arthur's whole story. No one knows for sure but his victims and himself. Let it go. Now there's some more chatter on the thread about where to find the mug sheet and the rap sheet and the, and the, the arrest records. And he might have been listed as James Durovic or Durogzovic in different places. And maybe the mugshot was removed and replaced at some point, which made the conspiracy grow even deeper on the thread. So Kathy X returns to the site saying she found the shroomery thread through Google, just typing James Arthur Madera into the, into the search engine. And this is the first site that came up. And she basically returns to the site to scold people for defending this guy because she knows some inside information that basically points to his guilt and points to the fact that he did kill himself. And this is all exactly as it was reported in the news and that the people who are trying to defend him are sad and pathetic and are in denial. And then somebody named Mysterioso enters the conversation. And Mysterioso seems to have a lot of information about what James Arthur was doing previous to his arrest and what the circumstances surrounding the arrest are. In fact, he says he knows James Arthur and he was a very close friend of James Arthur. In fact, he lived with James Arthur. Now, I don't know if any of this is real. I don't know how much of this is real. I'm not claiming to be an expert on this. I'm just claiming to tell you what this thread says. And if you read all the way through this thread and digest it a couple of times, you will come to the conclusion that this person, Mysterioso, is actually somebody named Danny Z, who was a very close friend of James Arthur. Maybe they were even involved in a sexual relationship. I have no idea, but that is alleged here in this thread. Mysterioso slash Danny Z tells a story of a petty squabble between fucked up academic wannabes who think that they are on the thread of the biggest secret in all of human history. Apparently, James Arthur and Jack Herrera were working on a new book about the sacred mushroom in history. Now, Jack Herrera, many of you probably know who he is. If you don't, he became famous in the 70s or 80s for writing a book called called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. It came out in uh, 1985, I guess. And this is a pretty good book. I mean, it is a detailed book about the actual conspiracy to make marijuana illegal. And it was a conspiracy between politicians and industrialists who wanted to make it more difficult to purchase hemp and to use the marijuana legalization issue as a crypto race issue. And it's a really troubling story. I mean, the, the whole story around prohibition and the original uh, reefer madness movement to ban marijuana, it's an ugly story in American history. And this, this book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, tells it pretty well. And so Jack Herrera is no stranger to conspiracy theories. He made his bones off of revealing this particular marijuana conspiracy theory. 
And he became so famous for this book that he was actually nicknamed the Hemperer because he became uh, an advocate for legalized hemp. And he would always show up at rallies in his outfit made purely out of hemp material and hemp cloth, claiming that legalization of hemp can save the world, which is a fairly grandiose statement, but it was echoed over and over and over and over and over again after this book. Hemp can save the world. That was Jack Herrera's rallying cry. So cut to 2004, 2005. James Arthur and Jack Herrera are working on this book. According to Danny Z, Mysterioso, on this thread. Jack Herrera, James Arthur are working on this book, except neither one of them are very good at typing. They basically sit around and talk shit all day. <laughs> and nothing is getting written. And there's talk about the fact that James, well... There's talk about the fact that Jack Herrera had, had a stroke and he wasn't really very, very adept at the computer anymore. And for whatever reason, James Arthur and Jack Herrera decided to hire a secretary to type the manuscript that they were working on. And I'm going to flip here into Mysterioso's comments because I don't think I could do justice to, to this next part if I was trying to summarize. Mysterioso writes... These charges against James Arthur were brought against a disgruntled former secretary who was hired by Jack Herrera to type the manuscript they were working on. The secretary, in quotes, was telling friends that she was going to be a millionaire until she was informed that typing, in quotes, does not mean co-author and was let go by Jack Herrera. It also fails to mention that on the day of his arrest, the so-called secretary and Jack Herrera broke into James Arthur's house and stole computers containing most of James's research, as well as over $3,000 of rare books that were the key to his research, as well as other property. So Mysterioso, Danny Z, who was apparently living in the house where this all happened, paints a picture of Jack Herrera and the secretary setting up James Arthur, having him arrested, and then stealing all of his books and his computers for their own research. And that in the days after his arrest, while visiting James Arthur in jail, the main thing that James Arthur was concerned about was that he had been betrayed by his friends and they stole his books. He was worried about his stolen books while in jail, arrested under charges of being a sex offender. And he was upset that the Sheriff's County, that the Madera County Sheriff's Department wouldn't press charges against Jack Herrera and the secretary for stealing his books. He also has some choice words to say about Jack Herrera's wife, Jeannie, which is also implicated in this white trash melodrama somehow as being one of the linchpins of the whole thing. We also find out that on the day after the arrest, or shortly after the arrest, Jan Irvin may have come into the house to retrieve some files from the computer. Now, there's some speculation about whether or not this actually happened. And if it did happen, what was Jan Irvin recovering? Was he recovering James Arthur's research? Or was he there to delete evidence of child pornography off the hard drive? We don't know. We have no idea what was going on. But this is, this, is here, this is here in these threads on this board. Now, Mysterioso claims 
that Jack and Jeannie Herrera were living in a sparse mobile home and that they seemed to think that they could get rich, they could become millionaires off of publishing James Arthur's research. And that this whole setup was motivated by their greed to try and make some money off of James's research. Now, entering the thread on the Schumery is someone named Sid, C-Y-D, who claims to be James Arthur's sister. And James Arthur's sister is there to condemn Kathy, the wife of the prison guard, for slandering James's name and to back up Danny Z's story, Mysterioso's story, and she actually calls Mysterioso Daniel in her text, which sort of blows his cover there. He's no longer Mysterioso. Sid outs him as being Daniel. So now we have James Arthur's friend, roommate, possible lover, his sister, uh, many friends of his in the community, and the wife of the prison guard at the Madera County Jail, all joining into this discussion about what happened to James Arthur and what were the extenuating circumstances. And for a while, this thread devolves into a shouting match or a bickering match between people who have uh, differing opinions of what happened here in this, in this strange event. And now things get a little weird because there are deleted comments on this thread. Surprise, surprise. After the fact, some people came back and deleted the comments on this thread. For whatever reason, I don't know. But around this time, Jeannie Herrera, Jack Herrera's wife, comes into the thread and gets into a detailed conversation with Jan Irvin about what happened to the books and what happened to James Arthur's research after he was arrested. Now, Jan Irvin claims that he came into the house to back up the computer. He was just there to back up the research in case the computer was seized for some reason. Now, it is impossible to know for sure what Jan Irvin wrote on this thread because he went back and deleted all of his comments related to this thread. For what reason? I don't know. Jan Irvin seems to think that someone named Miss V who I can only assume was the secretary, came to the property to steal a bunch of stuff after James Arthur went to jail, basically to try and get some compensation for the work that she had done. And we know this because Jeannie copied a bunch of Jan's statements into a reply. So we see some of Jan's comments in Jeannie's reply. And so in this exchange, we find that Jeannie essentially believes that James Arthur is guilty. And according to her side of the story, once James had been arrested, there was a scramble to get all of his possessions out of the house. She implies that Danny Z had called her in a rage and told her that if she didn't get her stuff out of the house that night, he was going to throw it all out. And then there is some back and forth about Jan admitting that he went to the house to back up the computer and that the, the computer was never stolen. It was just hidden at one point so somebody else wouldn't find it. And apparently there maybe have been multiple computers and Mrs. V may have stolen some of them. That's what Jan says. So there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of weirdness going on in the aftermath of James Arthur's arrest and suicide in jail. And 
Jeannie Herrera and Jan Irvin are right there in the middle of it, as well as this guy named Danny Z. Now, apparently, uh, Jan Irvin had James Arthur write the foreword to his book that was coming out. I believe it's called The Holy Mushroom. But of course, that foreword never saw the light of day. Now, in this conversation between uh, Jan Irvin and Jeannie Herrera, which goes on for multiple posts, and if Jeannie hadn't copied every single line that Jan wrote that she wanted to respond to, we wouldn't get any side of this story, because like I said, Jan Irvin deleted all of these comments. But the gist of it is Jan Irvin was upset that Jeannie Herrera would tell anybody who called or anybody who asked that James Arthur was guilty and that that was that, and that she had prejudged the outcome of the case before it even started. Jeannie's upset because Jan may have been involved in the stealing of some of the equipment at the house and that he seemed hell-bent on trying to clear James Arthur's name, or at least imply that he was not guilty of the crimes that he was arrested for. Now, the thread devolves into some bickering about whether or not what James Arthur did was actually criminal, and if his priors were actually real priors, or if he was just involved in some sort of child pornography ring, or if he had just been involved in some nudist community where they were naked around children and he got busted for that. Now Sid comes back into the conversation, so presumably James Arthur's sister. She wants to point the finger at this Miss V in quotes, whose name is Valerie, I believe, because Jeannie let the, uh, let the name out in one of her posts. This is apparently the secretary that they hired to type the manuscript, who they summarily let go because... She was upset that she wouldn't get the millions of dollars that they would all receive being co-authors of this book while she was just the lowly typist. The theory being offered by Sid and Danny Z was that this woman, Valerie, moved into the house to help Jack and James Arthur type this manuscript. And then after some falling out, she was let go. And in spite she filed the charges against James Arthur, claiming that he had molested her teenage children, who were also living at the house with them. Now, I can only imagine what the conditions of this house were like. You get a lot of different pictures from the people living here. That Danny Z was an alcoholic. That Jack Herrera and Jeannie were constantly stoned and in their own little world. And that Jan Irvin was this, this sort of sycophantic also-ran who was enamored with James Arthur and basically willing to listen to anything he had to say. And, and the topper is, in the wake of this tragedy, this horrible tragedy, even if, it, if it's true, it's a tragedy. If it's not true, it's a tragedy. But in the wake of the tragedy of James Arthur's death, it appears that the only thing people are interested in arguing about is what happened to these books that James Arthur allegedly had. $3,000 worth of books. And what would happen to their precious, precious research? All of James Arthur's precious research about the sacred mushroom in history. What is going to happen to that? There's not one word about 
what happened to the victims, if there were any victims, about whether the charges were true. Mostly people ready to rush to the defense of James Arthur and shame anyone who wants to call him a pedophile. And this goes on and on. And then, if that wasn't enough, someone named Glenda, James Arthur's mother, hops on this thread. Now, she's there to defend James Arthur. She says she knows the real story about Jack Herrera and his so-called wife, and V. I don't know why they keep referring to this person as V. I don't know why they're protecting her or what they're hiding. Maybe that's what everybody called her, V. But she is the only mysterious person in this, uh, in this whole group that hasn't posted to this board. So I don't know what that means, but there you go. And beyond that, Glenda is also concerned about the books. She writes, we'll see whose books they are. Glenda Decker, mother of James. Okay, so this sort of heralds the end of the thread here, where Jeannie Herrera and Glenda get into an argument about whether or not James Arthur is gay, whether or not he's a sex offender. Jeannie seems to think he is, and that he hid all this information from Jack. And Glenda says, no, he wasn't. He wasn't gay, and he wasn't a sex offender. And then the thread truly descends into a shouting match between Jeannie Herrera and Glenda, the theoretically James Arthur's mother. Glenda tells Jeannie to shut her big-ass mouth, calls her a lowlife. She says, shut your lying, dirty mouth. James Arthur's mother says, tell the bitch to stop calling my son dirty names and look in her own house. At which point, the logical people on this board say, start saying this thread should be locked. This thread should be closed. This is going too far. Which, thankfully, it does. The thread finally comes to an end. After four months of this back and forth between Jeannie Herrera and Jan Irvin and Danny Z and Sid, James's sister, and Glenda, James's mother, airing all of this out on this board, on the shroomery, and guess what? Not once does any one of these assholes say, it's really tragic what happened to James. I'm sad that he's gone. No, it's all about, where are the books? Who stole the books? Where are the computers? What happened to the information that was on the computers? Who set up James? Who's going to make millions of dollars from this fabulous manuscript that's going to blow the doors off of everybody in the world? What happened to the disgruntled typist? How much of a slob is Jack Herrera? How much of a stoner is Jeannie? How drunk is Danny? Is Danny gay? Is James Arthur gay? It is one absolutely twisted, fucked up mess. It is the lowest, slimiest form it is the lowest, slimiest form of narcissistic, tone-deaf, finger-pointing outrage all centered around who is going to get the credit, who is going to get the prize, who is going to remain 
in control of the manuscript and the books and the research now that James Arthur has killed himself. Or, on the opposite side, trying to defend James Arthur's name against the accusations of pedophilia so that his research can be continued without it being tarnished by these horrible, horrible accusations. Now, here's the kicker. Jack Herrera has since passed away. He was not able to finish the book that he and James Arthur were working on for various reasons. He was sick, he did not have a typist, and he did not have James Arthur. However, you can go to Jack Herrera's website, which is run by Junie Herrera at jackherrera.com. And in the menu under Jack, there is a section called Mushrooms and Religion is the one chapter that Jack Herrera and James Arthur managed to finish while they were working there in that house. It's called Introduction to the Song of Songs. And at the top of this chapter is a note from Jeannie that says, This is what Jack was working on before he passed away. He became interested in this subject after reading John Marco Allegro's The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And then we have an ethnomycological reading of the Song of Songs, which is the Song of Solomon. Now, guess whose name is not mentioned on this page? James Arthur's. Guess whose name is not mentioned anywhere on Jack Herrera's site? James Arthur. Even though James Arthur is probably responsible for the majority of the research on this chapter, Introduction to the Song of Songs. JackHerrera.com claims it's Jack's. No mention of James Arthur. James Arthur has been erased from this chapter. Introduction to the Song of Songs. And what of Jan Irvin, who apparently escaped with computer backups of all the work that James Arthur was doing at the time? Well, he released his own book, called uh, The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity. Guess who's not mentioned in that book? James Arthur. James Arthur, who was supposed to write the foreword to this book, who inspired most of the research in this book, not mentioned once. Jan Irvin, of course, famously runs Gnostic Media, which is a tribute site to Allegro and Wasson and, uh, you know, all of this crypto-Amanita cult. You can go to Gnostic Media and search over all the records of everything Gnostic Media has ever produced. Guess whose name never appears once credited in the research or inspiration for anything that Gnostic Media has produced? James Arthur. After James Arthur went to jail and hung himself, he was deleted from the record of everything these people were working on at the time of his death. He was absolutely erased with not one mention, not one credit, not a whisper. James Arthur was disappeared from the psychedelic community like he never fucking existed. This is the never
Of all these episodes I've done, this one is perhaps the most depressing to me, and I'm not sure why, because I never cared about James Arthur. I never cared about the Amanita Muscaria movement or the Soma movement. I had met Jack Herrera a couple of times at conferences, and he was always kind of rude and dismissive to me. I've heard people describe him as being sort of prickly, kind of standoffish person. I don't know if he was just rude or an asshole or weird or what, but I never really figured out what was going on with Jack Herrera. But here's the thing. When you read this thread on the shroomery about what happened, it's impossible to ignore what's going on in this house that they're all living in and working in. And it's this vision of this house, this two-bedroom house cluttered with books and papers and academic drug experts sitting around talking about how they're all about to blow the lid on organized religion and shatter the illusions of Western civilization with their amazing book. And without sitting down and interviewing everybody who lived in that house, it is impossible to know what happened to James Arthur. Even either you believe Jeannie Herrera's side of the story, which is that James Arthur was a pedophile. He hid that from them the whole time that they lived and worked together. And he did, in fact, molest young children who were around the house, in the house, potentially living there in the house with them. Which is horrible. Which is a horrible thing to think about. Or you can look at Danny's side of the story, where he says, basically, that James Arthur was set up over some petty dispute about money. And that when the typist, who was fired or informed that they would not be receiving money as a co-author of the book, got fed up with James Arthur. She went through his wallet and found that he had a card that showed he was a registered sex offender, and then used that to tip off the police that he was molesting children as some sort of vindictive setup to get him back for something or to remove him from the house. Now, if that's the case, it's equally horrible, maybe even more horrible, because it makes everyone in that house look like petty, backstabbing narcissists willing to sell out an acquaintance for a few thousand dollars worth of books and computers. Molesting children is horrible and inexcusable. And if that's what happened in that house, that's just depressing and terrible to think about. But the alternative theory that James Arthur may have been framed over a petty dispute about money is equally sad and tragic and paints a horrible picture of everything going on at that house. And all of those things are, are just crazy to me. They're, my mind has trouble going there and 
trying to figure out what was going on in this house and how deep in their own delusions they must have been to not know what was going on with James Arthur or to have so much petty backbiting vindictiveness that they would be willing to set somebody up to go to jail to solve a dispute. And from the outside looking in at this thread, I recognize this house as what I would call a drug house, where a bunch of drug addicts flop and sit around and talk about their pipe dreams all day and never realize that they're, they're going nowhere and just spinning their wheels with their illusions of greatness. But to be clear, these were not your average stoners and trippers and junkies and losers. This was royalty of the drug counterculture. This was Jack Herrera, the emperor, the self-proclaimed emperor of hemp. If he had a throne he could sit on and a crown he would wear, he would gladly wear it. That's how, that's how full of himself he was. He was the emperor. And he walked around telling people that hemp will save the planet. Okay? The emperor. And on the other side, you have James Arthur, who is the self-proclaimed world's leading ethnomycologist, anointed by John Allegro himself. So you have the emperor of hemp and the world's leading ethnomycologist living and working in near poverty out of a packed two-bedroom house, trying for months to produce a book that they believed would be the most amazing thing ever written in the English language and possibly make them millions and millions of dollars. And over the period of months, and requiring someone else to type the manuscript for them, they only managed to complete a single chapter before the whole thing exploded into an accusation of child molestation, a suicide in prison, and a resulting petty dispute over a few thousand dollars worth of books and computers that devolved into a shouting match online. Now, having said all that, I want you to do a mental exercise. Do this mental exercise with me, and maybe you'll understand why this is so depressing for me. I want you to juxtapose the lofty illusions of people who claim that Amanita Muscaria is Soma, or Jesus, or the Holy Grail, or the Philosopher's Stone, or the magical key to immortality and healing and secret wisdom. Put that lofty image in your mind of Amanita as this, this sacred mushroom that bestows a magical gift of the gods on the user. The most holiest of holy sacraments, Amanita Muscaria, Soma, the Philosopher's Stone. Now juxtapose all this lofty talk about spirituality and religion and wisdom and healing and immortality with the bare reality of the lives of the people who claim to be the greatest champions of this magical secret, the emperor and the world's leading ethnomycologist, James Arthur. 
Compare all the esoteric talk about Amanita Muscaria as a gateway to wisdom with the stark reality of this message thread on the shroomery, which descends into petty bickering and half-hearted defense of somebody who was accused of child molestation. Because to me, the gulf between the illusions of what Amanita Muscaria bestows on the user and the reality of the people, of the people's lives who are making these claims, the gulf could not be wider. I do not see any wise spiritual masters in this scenario. I don't see the ancient spiritual wisdom of somebody who has drunk from the Holy Grail. I see paranoid delusions of grandeur and fucked up interpersonal bickering and a house where people are living in squalor getting high on their own insane bullshit. Now maybe I'm being unfair, but it seems to me like if there was a single bit of truth to any of the claims about Amanita Muscaria being a positive spiritual force in people's lives, then the people living in this house should have been enlightened masters and exemplars of spiritual excellence. They should have been the holiest people on the planet, like the Dalai Lama or something like that. And so I ask you in all seriousness, does the group of people pictured, portrayed on this message board on the shroomery look like a group of enlightened masters to you? Does that look like a group of people who ate the flesh of the gods or a group of people who found the eternal wisdom of the Holy Grail? Does it look anything like that? Fuck no, it doesn't look anything like that. It looks like a messed up, fucked up drug house full of stoners and losers high on their own bullshit. I mean, there's just no other way to parse it. And I feel like there is a grave error that has been made in the marketing and selling of this idea of Amanita Muscaria as Soma. And I would suggest that from now on, people change the titles of these stupid fucking books. I don't want to hear any more talk about the sacred mushroom or the holy mushroom or the divine mushroom. Just stop it. Because a far more accurate title for these books would be something like Amanita Muscaria, Mushroom of the Self-Important, Chronically Deluded, Piss-Drinking Narcissists. And if that's the way that this mushroom was sold, that it is the mushroom of self-important, chronically deluded, piss-drinking narcissists, at least I would say, okay, well, at least you've taken an honest look at what's going on here. Because the people in this house claiming to be the world's champion of exposing the great Amanita Muscaria conspiracy behind all religion look like nothing if not self-important, chronically deluded narcissists. I don't know if they drank their own piss, but who knows? It's possible. Now, I want you to 
please <laughs> blah so I ask you now to please forgive my confusion I apologized at the beginning of this episode for a reason I'm clearly not presenting all the facts here because I don't know all the facts I am mostly repeating hearsay and trolling through internet gossip to make my point. And I'm not doing this to slander the memory of James Arthur or Jack Herrera, because the job of slandering James Arthur has already been done. That ship has sailed. Nothing I can say about James Arthur can compete with, with, with what has already been said about him on the public record. But I highlight my confusion and lack of understanding here, not as a shortcoming, but as the primary point of this episode. Because after spending months researching Allegro and Wasson and the cult of the Amanita mushroom, I started with the Dead Sea Scrolls and was led back down this winding trail through Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny into this thread on the shroomery where everybody who knew James Arthur suddenly descends into a bickering horde squabbling over his books and prize research and his reputation and trying to divvy up the pieces of his corpse before he's even fucking cold. That's where this religious exercise has led me. That's where this exercise of wisdom of the ancients has led me to a bunch of people on an internet chat board bickering over the corpse of the dead world's foremost ethnomycologist and alleged child molester. So the people on this board, on the shroomery, they appear to be only interested in covering their ass and telling their side of the story, either defending James Arthur or condemning him. The squabbling over the missing books and who stole the computers illustrates the pettiness and desperation of the people involved in this story. Not to mention the mere fact that anybody who thought that James Arthur's sloppy, hashed-together research was worth anything, let alone millions of dollars, illustrates a serious delusional disorder and a break from reality that was chronic in this household. And like I said, James Arthur's final groundbreaking research hides in plain sight on Jack Herrera's memorial website. And it is seriously nonsensical drivel about mushrooms being the dove and the deer and the ointment and the oil and the pillar, and it's all meaningless garbage. It's all garbage. The one chapter that took them months to write, with the help of a typist, that turned this whole household upside down into a turmoil, is garbage. They were all bickering and fighting over garbage. Now, if you think I'm being hyperbolic, I invite you to read this chapter for yourself. You can find it. You can Google Jack Herrera's Song of Solomon, and you will find it. The Song of Songs is as dubious and odious as any Bible decoding, decoding of Bible scriptures can be. Allegro would be proud at how badly they got it wrong. And Jack Herrera on his website claims that this is his work. But this is clearly the work of James Arthur, because once James Arthur died, the work ended. Jack Herrera never added anything to this work. It's not Jack Herrera's work, and I don't know why he would want to take credit for it, but there you go. That's the way that this community works, I guess. 
Now, one of the reasons that this episode took so long to produce is that I have painful and conflicting feelings about this subject. First of all, ethnomycology has grown into sort of a legitimate academic field of study, and despite the shortcomings I find with Wasson and Allegro and James Arthur and Jan Irvin and Terence McKenna, there are many other people in this field who are earnestly trying to hold these threads together. And I do not want to throw the entire field of ethnomycology under the bus just because there are some or a few or a handful or a majority of notorious crackpots in this field. But just studying this for a few months, I feel like I'm descending into crackpot territory myself because I can't keep it all together in my head. What is the endpoint of all this Fly Garrick cult line of thinking? There's nothing definitive. There's nothing definitive, nothing world-changing, and nothing relevant to the modern world that will ever come out of this field. It's all a mess of historical speculation and conspiracy. And secondly, I don't understand the grandiosity of the conspiracy. It hurts my head. And I don't understand why t taking lines of research down this thread leads to rhapsodic passages of semen falling from the sky and heroic odes of drinking golden streams of urine and ends up with an accused pedophile committing suicide in jail and then everybody disavowing any relationship to this person and bickering over his corpse. And all of this base discussion of semen worship and urine drinking and alleged pedophilia is wrapped in the weighty theological guise of gnosis and enlightenment and immortality. Gnosis, enlightenment, and immortality. That's what they are selling with this theory. Gnosis, enlightenment, and immortality. But what I find is semen rain, urine drinking, pedophile committing suicide in jail. And also, Santa Claus is a mushroom. And why the fuck do you need to bring Santa Claus into your delusion? Why do you need to implicate, why do you need to implicate the Easter Bunny in this twisted sexual mythology? There's no point to it other than to say, ha ha, I'm smarter than you. I found some weird stuff in a Bible passage that says that Jesus was a mushroom. I don't, I just don't buy it. This entire topic makes me angry and sad. But this is my journey through the Flyagaric cult. Instead of seeing Wasson and Allegro as heroes, I see Wasson as a messy academic with a few hit records and Allegro as a sad cover band trying to recapture that fleeting glory. And in the wake of this Amanita cult, we descend through the decades into a messy dispute between the world's foremost ethnomycologist, James Arthur, and the man who was vain enough to call himself the Emperor, Jack Herrera. And given the squalor and poverty both of these men found themselves in at the end of their lives, I can tell you with certainties that these titles, the Emperor and the world's foremost ethnomycologist, are hollow and meaningless. They mean nothing. And these guys were both apparently so lacking in any self-awareness that they had no idea how asinine they looked to other people who didn't care that they were the emperor or the world's foremost ethnomycologist. They were just dirtbags living in a house, trying to write a book, and unable to do so. Two grown men trying to write a book can't do it.
Oh, right, because they had strokes. Apparently they had both had strokes. Somewhere in this message thread, Danny claims that James Arthur suffered a series of strokes at some point and that he had hid that knowledge from other people, but that it had degraded his functioning. And it is well known that Jack Herrera had had at least one or two massive strokes that almost killed him. In Somewhere in the early 2000s, Jack Herrera had a stroke that almost totally immobilized him and nearly turned him into a vegetable. His recovery from the stroke was slow and arduous. And I'm sure he had people by his side, doctors and nurses, physical therapists, loved ones, day and night, there with him, hoping and praying for his recovery. And though Jack Herrera's life was saved and brought back to health by the tireless work of dozens if not hundreds of people, on Wikipedia, he credits his miraculous recovery not with the love of his family, not with the countless hours of work done by his doctors and physical therapists, but with one thing overall. According to Wikipedia, can you guess what it is? Jack Herrera claims that the miraculous recovery from his stroke was all due to one thing. Can you guess what it was? Go on, guess. I dare you. Guess. What does Jack Herrera claim brought him back from death after his near-fatal stroke? That's right. Jack Herrera claims that his miraculous recovery from his stroke was all due to eating the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Really? Really, Jack? After months of medical intervention by humans, educated, educated humans using sophisticated medical interventions, and the tireless love of whatever family you haven't alienated, after all the help and support you got from all of the humans around you, eagerly awaiting your recovery, you claim that your recovery is due to eating Amanita muscaria mushrooms. Really? Really? I mean, what more do you need to hear about Jack Herrera? This guy was totally delusional. Jack Herrera was not only an opportunistic asshole, he was an asshole to the bitter end. Now, I don't know how that got into the Wikipedia page. Maybe Jack Herrera never claimed that Amanita Muscaria helped him recover from his stroke, but I've read it in a couple places. I can only assume it's true. I can only assume that after he got hooked up with Allegro, he bought into the line that the Amanita Muscaria is the, you know, healing gnosis, enlightenment, the key to immortality, etc., etc. I can't tell you how disturbed I am by that, because what happens if somebody recovering from a stroke actually reads that? What happens if somebody who is tangentially interested in mushrooms and psychedelics has a loved one who has a stroke and it's a bad stroke and they're not sure what, what's going to happen if, if their loved one is ever going to recover and then they come across this quote from Jack Herrera saying the thing that helped me recover from my stroke was Amanita muscaria mushrooms 
Is that going to give that person false hope that giving Amanita muscaria mushrooms to their loved one who had a stroke is going to save them? Is that just adding one more layer of miraculous bullshit onto all these other lies about gnosis and spiritual illumination and immortality offered by this tiny little mushroom? I mean, where does it end? Where does it end? Are we next going to start claiming that this mushroom can bring people back from the dead? Because that's what's fucking next. They've already claimed it can do everything else, so why not? Officially now, for the record, I'm saying Omnita muscaria, mushroom of immortality, it will bring you back from the dead. Now this brings me to the final part of this episode, which has nothing to do with anything that came before, except it relates back to the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And I only tell you this story now because there is nowhere else I can tell this story. If you have listened to the podcast this far, if you've been following the 10 episode series, then you have just unlocked an Easter egg. What follows now is a hidden, untold story that I call Isaac's Word. Sometime around the fall of 2005, I began to notice full-page ads in the alternative weekly newspaper in Seattle, a paper called The Stranger. You can find The Stranger online. It is a great paper. I love it. I read it every week. But these ads in The Stranger, around the fall, spring of 2005, they were different. They could only be described as full-page manifestos, rants, or diatribes from an anonymous writer who called himself Isaac's Word. Now, the first week I saw this full-page ad of ranting nonsense, I ignored it. The second week, I found it annoying and mildly amusing. But by three weeks in, Isaac's Word was now taking up two full pages in the center spread of the newspaper, sometimes three pages, and the rants were becoming more elaborate and more insane. This trend of Isaac's word posting two-page paid rants in the center of the stranger continued for three months, or more, at least three months. Now, I know a few things about publishing, and I knew whoever was posting these two-page centerfold rants was paying thousands of dollars to take up two pages of prime real estate in the center of Seattle's alternative weekly newspaper. So reluctantly, I began reading this rants. I began reading them week after week. And what I found was deeply troubling. These rants, from Isaac's word, consisted of conspiracy theories about mind control and mushrooms and society. The manifestos were jumbled and meandering and poorly written, but I could recall some of the talking points from these articles now. First of all, the writer was obsessed with the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 
and he referenced Nurse Ratchet over and over and over again as a scolding or shaming force in the repression of the freedoms of modern society. Now, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a movie based on a novel by Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey is, of course, a founding member of the Merry Pranksters and the primary subject of Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. So right away, obsession with Nurse Ratchet and Cuckoo's Nest, I have a clue that this person is tuned into psychedelic culture somehow. Now, in later rants, I see that Isaac's word is also obsessed with Terence McKenna, and he believes that Terence McKenna is actually a later-day reincarnation of John the Apostle, the author of the book of Revelations in the Bible. And he is so obsessed with the notion that Terence McKenna is a reincarnation of John the Apostle that he believes that Terence McKenna will be resurrected from his premature death in 2003 and will become the undead harbinger of the apocalypse in 2012. Okay, so I could tell Isaac's word is off the rails. It takes me months of ignoring this guy, but once I pay close attention to what he's saying, given all the clues in the text, I immediately recognize that whoever is behind Isaac's word Whoever is spending tens of thousands of dollars each week, they are some kind of big-time psychedelic kook. So in addition to the crazy elements I've already described, Isaac's word went on to claim that he was the reincarnation of Christ and that he was in constant psychic trinity with Prem Rawat, an Indian-American cult guru who preaches the value of joy, and Neil Young, the Canadian-American songwriter who writes songs about the needle and the damage done and all of that stuff. According to Isaac's word, the trinity between himself, Prem Rawat, and Neil Young represented the second coming of Christ, as told by the book of Revelations. And on top of that, any day now, Neil Young would put out a press release that would confirm that he was the second coming of Christ and that all of the stuff that was printed in these stranger rants was true. And, oh yes, Terence McKenna would rise from the grave to put the shameful eye of Nurse Ratchet down for good. Now, I will say that I am slow to motivate to do anything. In most cases, I could give a shit about stuff like this. It is just more noise and bullshit coming through my weekly newspaper. But Isaac's word went on and on and on in The Stranger for up to six months, maybe. Every week or every other week, there was a new two or three page screed from Isaac's word. And each week I tried to ignore it, but each week it went on and on with more crazy stuff about Terrence McKenna and Nurse Ratchet and Neil Young, and I couldn't take it anymore. After six months, I broke down and decided to do something about it. Okay, so how do you approach a situation like this? What's the angle? How do you get, a, get an edge into this madness? Clearly, Isaac's word had devolved into psychedelic gibberish, but the stranger was allowing this delusion to continue because they were receiving thousands of dollars in advertising revenue each week to publish this nonsense. So my professional training is as a writer and a reporter. And at the time, I was no longer publishing Trip Magazine. I was working on a screenplay and submitting articles on spec. I had no way to contact Isaac's word, so the first thing I did was call Neil Young's publicist. 
if you've ever done any reporting or celebrity reporting, you know that the easiest way to contact a celebrity, the lowest rung in their entourage, is always the publicist. <laughs> so I left a voicemail with Neil Young's publicist and told them that there was a person in Seattle publishing articles in the newspaper claiming that they were in psychic contact with Neil Young and that Neil Young was the second coming of Christ. I asked the publicist for a comment on this story. Within three hours, the publicist called me back and told me there was no truth to these allegations and that Neil Young was definitely not in psychic contact with anyone named Isaac's Word in Seattle. And in addition, this was the first time they had heard about anyone claiming to be in psychic contact with Neil Young. And even though it had been going on for six months, they didn't get any word from it from anybody. I was the first person to tell Neil Young that somebody was in psychic contact with him, publishing in this Seattle paper, The Stranger. And the publicist asked me, should I take legal action? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to get in contact with this guy and figure out what's going on. I will get back to you if I think you need to take legal action. So now that I had an official comment from Neil Young's publicist, I then called the stranger's advertising department, and I strong-armed them into giving me Isaac's words contact information. I told them that I was in contact with Neil Young, and he was upset that someone was publishing false information about him in The Stranger, and that he was considering legal action against the publisher. Now, that was enough for them to give me the phone number and contact information for the person publishing all these rants in the paper. Next, I called Isaac's word, and I left him a message on his voicemail. I told him that I was a psychedelic journalist. I told him that I worked with Trip Magazine, which at the time was no longer publishing. I told him that I was in contact with Neil Young and that I wanted to ask him questions about his posts in The Stranger. I told him that it was urgent and that I needed to speak with him immediately. Within 24 hours, I heard back from Isaac's word, and he agreed to meet with me in person. The next day, I met Isaac's word at a coffee shop in the Wallingford area of Seattle. Now, if you've listened to these podcasts, you know I am a no-nonsense guy who has a very low tolerance for people talking shit. I like things front and center. I don't like nuance and obfuscation. I want things to be clear. So from the first interaction with Isaac's word, I gave him a few copies of Trip Magazine and told him that I represented Neil Young and the psychedelic community. I told him that we had noticed his paid rants in the Stranger newspaper, and we wanted them to stop because they were false and defamatory, and that he was clearly delusional and was making a fool of himself, not to mention wasting thousands of dollars spreading this nonsense that nobody was reading. I told him all of this over coffee in about 10 minutes. I assured him that I was the only person paying attention to what he was writing, and that I was the only person who would ever contact him to ask him to stop. I told him that I was asking him to stop his rants on behalf of the psychedelic community and on behalf of Neil Young, who might be considering legal action if he continued these rants into the future. In the following hours, I listened to Isaac's word, and I listened to him make his case. We talked for a half hour at the coffee shop and then walked back to his house a few blocks away. He was a relatively normal-looking, 
late 30s, early 40s white guy. He told me he had owned a successful chain of bakeries in the north part of Seattle and that he had sold his business once he began learning about shamanism and studying psychedelic lore. He told me that since he started experimenting with psychedelics, he had alienated all of his friends and been committed to the local Harborview mental crisis facility twice in the two previous years. That's twice in the two previous years. And he was now renting in an apartment, studying ethnomycology, and trying to get his life back together. And although he had millions of dollars in the bank from selling his bakery business, he had worn through most of that money with reckless spending, giving huge personal loans to friends, spending and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars buying full-page ads in The Stranger every week. He, after a few years studying psychedelics on this spiritual quest, was now almost broke. Now, I'm ashamed to admit it because I like to think I don't give a fuck, but I felt sorry for this guy, and I spent nearly three hours with him listening to him vent his crazy bullshit about Nurse Ratchet and Prim Rawat and Neil Young and Terrence McKenna and so on and so on. And despite my objections, he claimed he was in psychic contact with Neil Young the entire time we were talking. He claimed that he could see into an invisible waiting room of spirits hovering just above his eye line. And he could see the spirits of people coming in and out of this waiting room while we were talking. He told me Neil Young was talking to him as he spoke. And then when I told him that I had already been in contact with Neil Young's people, and that they had denied having any psychic contact with him, he frowned and became very concerned. You really contacted Neil Young, he asked, almost ashamed. I confirmed that I had contacted Neil Young, and that he wanted nothing to do with this. Isaac's word objected over and over and over again that I had got it wrong, and I had to tell him over and over and over again that he was delusional. He was not in contact with Neil Young. He had to stop it. And then, finally, he asked me to watch a video of a Neil Young live performance with him because he assured me there would be hidden messages in the tape that would prove that he was in psychic contact with Neil Young. He would be able to prove to me by watching this live performance that Neil Young was sending messages to him through the TV. Now, despite my better judgment, I agreed to watch a few minutes of the Neil Young concert. And within five minutes, Neil Young is telling a story about a young girl dancing in her bedroom. It is a pretty innocuous story. But Isaac's word tries to convince me that Neil Young is not talking about dancing and he's not talking about a little girl. He's talking about masturbating. And he's not talking about dancing in your room. He's talking about masturbating in public. And that really... The gist of all of his rants was that men should not be ashamed to masturbate in public. Okay, now this is where the story gets weird, if it hasn't been weird so far. Isaac's word turns to me and tells me in all sincerity that through the video, Neil Young is instructing us to masturbate together. 
Because men escaping the shameful eye of Nurse Ratchet and having the freedom to masturbate together is the key to world peace. Now, what am I to say to this? The Stranger is the queer alternative weekly, but they have a classified section for men who want to hook up with other men. You don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on weekly full-page ads talking about mushrooms and civilization and claiming to be in psychic contact with Neil Young in order to hook up with another man who wants to masturbate with you. There's a very easy way to do that. The fact that this whole journey down the rabbit hole of Isaac's word ended up in some kind of roundabout pseudo-spiritual circle-jerk fantasy should not have surprised me. And yet it did. This is what this guy's psychosis came down to at the core. At the center of this entire six-month saga of full-spread psychedelic rants in the local alternative weekly, there was a lonely rich guy who just wanted to masturbate with other guys without shame. And I don't give a fuck about that. He should be able to do that all day and all night. This is Seattle. You can easily do that sort of thing here. It's not a problem. But because he could not articulate this impulse, or he couldn't articulate this without some internal shame, he concocted an entire conspiracy about how the system was oppressing him through the evil, shameful eye of Nurse Ratchet, and that the trinity of saviors, Neil Young, Prem Rawat, and Terence McKenna, would rise up and anoint him the resurrection of Jesus, and free him from the bondage of society so that he can masturbate in public with other men without shame or judgment. And he spent literally over $100,000 publishing this nonsense in the newspaper. He sold his successful local business. He alienated all of his friends and family and had been committed to a mental institution two times in the years before I met him. And he was clearly insane. Even though he looked like a normal guy and he dressed like a normal guy and he walked on the street like a normal guy and he can carry on a conversation like a normal guy, he believed that he was seeing into an invisible waiting room filled with spirits and he was in contact, in psychic contact with Neil Young. All right, now here's the kicker. When I asked him what he was taking to make him think he was in psychic contact with Neil Young, he told me that he was experimenting with the sacred mushroom. He told me that the sacred mushroom was the key to ego death and that he could actually feel the mushroom squeezing and pinching and crushing his frontal lobes. And he, he made this motion like, his, like grabbing his frontal lobes with his hand and squeezing it like a sponge. He said that he could actually feel the mushroom squeezing his frontal lobes, totally destroying his ego like a chemical lobotomy. And he explained this to me like it was a good thing. That ego death was the proper first step on the spiritual path. And it was, in fact, the ego death that allowed him to be in psycho psychic contact with the astral plane. It was all due to the ego death, and it was all due to the sacred mushroom. And then I asked him what mushroom he was taking and how often he ate it. And he told me, in all sincerity, that he was eating Amanita muscaria mushrooms all day, every day. 
And when I asked him why in the world he would eat Amanita muscaria mushrooms every day, he told me, without blinking, because it's Soma. Right? I mean, it's Soma, isn't it? As if that was legitimately the only reason he needed to eat Amanita all day, every day. Because it's Soma. And Soma can't be bad for you, right? Now, there you have it. According to him, his logic was airtight. I mean, he was eating Soma and seeing into the astral plane. How the fuck can you argue with his results? So, either you believe in all this nonsense, and you believe that Isaac's word was on a spiritual path to enlightenment, and that he was in contact with Neil Young and Prem Rawat psychically, and he is the second coming of Christ, or you believe the alternative, which is he is fucking insane, and this mushroom makes you fucking insane. Now, I don't know about you, but I have seen enough evidence to believe the latter. The mushroom makes you insane. That is the evidence I see with my eyes. And I don't know what all this bullshit is in these books about Amanita Muscaria being some sort of gateway to immortality or gnosis, or spiritual illumination. It is all crap. It just makes you insane. It just makes you insane. And the only good thing I can say about this entire ordeal with Isaac's word is after I visited him and spoke with him, he stopped publishing his rants in The Stranger. Very, very small victory, but... I'll take it. This is the never ending story of life.